In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wanted to speak about a topic which we hear quite often, and that is that we hear it on TV, we, we read about it, probably at school, doctors, psychiatrists, etc., that Christianity promotes guilt and depression. So what I want to speak about to some extent today is, does Christianity promote, or as we say, create guilt and depression? And the answer to that is that I believe to a large extent it does. It creates an unhealthy guilt and an unhealthy depression. Now, some of you will say to yourselves that that sounds anti-Christian, anti-Orthodox, heretical, modern, I don't know, whatever words can come into someone's um, thing. So, are you shocked to hear that a priest is saying that Christianity creates guilt and depression? Well, what I wanted to read, read today is a section from Elder Porfirios's book of a person, a spiritual child of his, who writes about the elder. And he quotes the elder's words on this topic. And we're going to read through it. I want to read through it together with um, and you, and you people listening. And then let's say a few words about it. So one day the elder said to me, meaning this is the spiritual child now, who wrote his book after Elder Porfirios had departed. So he said, one day the elder said to me, a Christian should avoid sick type of piety, what we, what we call pietism, which in Greek is called efsevismos. Is that right? Yep. So it is not the same as piety. Again, we pray for pious and orthodox Christians. We heard in the service today what the priest says. Pious orthodox Christians is different to pietism. I have another word for pietism to help people understand it. It's a little bit abrupt. I call those type of people spiritual freaks. They are people who have completely gone off the track. And in a way, we all have some spiritual freakness in all of us, which we'll explain as time goes. So piety is healthy. Pietism is destructive. So Elder Porfirio says, a Christian should avoid sick piety or pietism. Both, he, now he explains, both the feeling of superiority due to his virtues and what's that? That's like the Pharisee that we read in the New Testament where Christ gave the parable. The Pharisee who believed that he was God's chosen, that God was happy with him, that he was proud and he put down everyone else. And that's what's called superiority. And if anyone says here, or those who will listen to the talk later on, if anyone says that they don't have an element of that, then they're liars. We all, to some degree, suffer from the spirit of vainglory. Some superiority. 
Even the saints, when we read the lives of saints, we saw how careful they were with that spirit. So we read, for example, if a saint became known because he was healing people and people started to flock to him and to praise him, he used to get up, leave secretly and go away. Some stayed, Saint Seraphim, of course, but of course he went through a really, Seraphim Sarov went through many years of asceticism where he was cut off completely for years. He had become a vessel of the Holy Spirit. But we read in general that many saints were scared of vainglory. We should ask ourselves, are we scared of vainglory? Are we scared of the spirit of where we like to show off our virtues or supposed virtues, whether real or not real? And if you say, I'm not scared, then that's basically a done deal. That means that the person who has that spirit has fallen into deception. Every Orthodox Christian has to have a sense of this pride, this vainglory, this disgusting, filthy spirit which comes in all of us, which cuts us off from God, this superiority. Worldly people say a superiority complex. That means that the person just thinks that he's superior to everyone else. Well, that is also in spiritual life. So that's one thing that he says is, is what's called sick piety. To actually love yourself and think that you're better and show off, etc. The other one that he says, the other he calls it a complex, the other complex, he says, is inferiority. Like what all the people say, inferiority complex. So even in in orthodoxy, we have that um, sickness, superiority complex and an inferiority complex. An inferiority complex is someone who, as he says here, that uh, has a feeling of inferiority due to his sinfulness. Now, worldly people may have that to some degree, that they're bad, they're bad, but in general, they just have a feeling that other people are better than them, not necessarily focusing on their sins. But in the Christian life, when we believe that because of our virtues we're, we're something special, that's superiority, or when we think that because of our sins, we, we say, oh, look at my sins, my sins, my sins, and then we, we actually feel down and out. But now some of you might say, but isn't that how a Christian should be? Isn't that what, what, what humility is? Humility is a person, like we read in the Bible there, where the Pharisee says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Why does then Elder Porphyrios call that particular uh, thing a complex, a psychological complex, a spiritual ailment? Why does he call it bad? And the answer we will see as time goes on. So he said... A complex is one thing, humility quite another. So those who overdo their feeling of inferior, who feel inferior because of their sins, he calls it a complex and he says it's not humility. So that's why we've got to be careful as priests, but also people have to be careful with, to examine themselves, don't study others, but examine yourself, and a priest, of course, it's his duty to examine others, has to see whether a person that's coming, say, even for confession, does the person have a real sense of his sins in humility, or does the person come with an inferiority type of complex, some sickness, 
which is really not good for spiritual life. See, Judas, he says that he, that he repented, that he felt guilty, but he wasn't saved. Peter also fell. Now, Peter fell by denying Christ three times, very, very big sin. Judas fell because he betrayed Christ. One's, one's a betrayal, the other one's a betrayal. One, we cut, what, what do we say? One's worse than the other. We say that both are forgivable. God can forgive both. What's the difference between the Apostle Peter and the other Apostle Judas? And the difference is, does anyone know? What's the difference between his, because it says he repented and he threw the coins that he got from the um, Jews. He threw them in the temple. He says, I, you know, this is, I betrayed innocent blood. So Judas realized what he did. He became guilty. He repented, it says, and then he threw the coins in the um, temple and says, what have I done? And the Jews said, that's your problem. What's the difference? Yes, John, what do you think? He didn't really repent in despair. He felt everything in despair. He didn't really repent. Judas did not come to God asking forgiveness and believing that God can forgive him. He didn't believe that he can be forgiven. See, Peter, he came, he, he, he repented with hope in God's mercy, while Judas repented with no hope of God's mercy. He was sorry for what he did. And this is where a lot of Christians stop. We repent, I shouldn't have done that. But we don't actually really go to God. Even if we say it in the confession, it's sometimes it's not even that's not even a proper spirit or because you go to confession and you say it you have to feel from within you have to feel from within that you are approaching God that you trust in God's mercy that you trust in God's love that you trust in God's compassion and that God will forgive you and in most of us we don't have that faith we don't have that uh, in our hearts that God is a forgiving God that's where we start having guilt and people continually I've done this enough for there and they're just like it's become psychological becomes mental uh, let's repeat that a complex is one thing Saint uh, Elder Prophet saying a psychological complex is different to humility a secular psychiatrist, in other words, a world, because in Greece they have psychiatrists that are also Orthodox Christians and faithful. I think in Russia the same. But um, this one was not a Christian psychiatrist. He was a secular one, doc, uh, one that does, doesn't believe in Christianity. Anyway, a secular psychiatrist visited me once and criticised Christianity because he said it creates guilt and depression. That's what the psychiatrist was saying. And what did I say to you before? I believe that's correct. To some extent, it's correct. But let's let the elder explain, in his words, the answer to that. And the elder said, I answered, I accept that some Christians, due to their own mistakes or those of others, are trapped in the sickness of guilt. So the elder admits to the psychiatrist that, yes, that there are Christians who have a sick guilt, I, either because of their own mistakes, of the way that they look at the spiritual life, 
or because of others. Now I want to speak about who's these others. And I'm going to say the others, unfortunately, could even be priests who are not teaching their Christians their faithful God's forgiveness, but some type of pietism, like I said before. Like they say, oh, you know, you're good. You know, you go to church. Oh, you had communion. Congratulations, that's good. You know, what's this congratulations that you've had communion? But anyway, that's one thing. Congratulations, you're good. You believe in God. This is what's called like a Protestant type of spirituality. What did I say in talk 27 and 26? I can't remember which ones. That orthodoxy is the only religion compared to others which has what? Who remembers? Orthodoxy. How, how does orthodoxy differ from Protestants or Catholics? How do we, or other Christian religions? How does orthodoxy differ? Emiliana said that because we have saints, Catholics have saints as well. Now, the ones after the schism we don't recognise, but they also have saints which they were orthodox because they were with us. That is uh, maybe for Protestants because they don't recognise saints. And you're sorry? Yes, the apostolic succession that the priests have their ordinations and bishops from the apostles. But something which is correct, but something further which I mentioned in the previous uh, previous talks. Um, is that Helen? The witch, the cross. Some of them preach that too. Orthodoxy is a process of therapy. Orthodoxy speaks about the healing of the soul. They don't speak about that. What is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy equals correct belief, obviously, but the healing of the soul. Only in the Orthodox Church do you hear those expressions that Christ is the physician, the doctor of our souls and bodies. And that the saints who struggled, they had one aim, for their soul to be cured, because when, we, when our souls are sick, we can't join with God. So we have to be in a process of our souls being healed so that we can unite with God and be saved. So that is the difference and that is a very, very important thing. And how does one's soul get healed? As we said before, we say that our souls get healed when we do the commandments of Christ, when we partake of the mysteries, when we're struggling in the spiritual life, which we'll come to that later on. So uh, Elder Porfirio says, I accept that some Christians, due to their own mistakes or, or those of others, are trapped in the sickness of guilt, but you must also accept that secular people are trapped in a worse sickness. So Elder Buru is saying, yes, Christians do have this guilt and that thing, not that it's the church's fault. Either people just don't listen, they read things, they don't understand them, but also the church at this time is at a low. Sometimes the church was spiritually strong and sometimes the church was spiritually low. We live in a spiritually low time now where the true meaning of the spiritual life is not really preached. 
in the churches. You only find that here and there, like in some monasteries, from elders who are teaching the true meaning of spiritual life. Seraphim of Sarov said it. The aim of the Christian life is the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. For us to gain the Holy Spirit. And to do that, we have to do the commandments and have to practice ascetical things and we have to repent and partake of the mysteries, etc. In Russia, before the revolution, there was only, out of the whole of Russia, with all those millions of people, there are only pockets of places who were teaching the true spirituality. Optina, Sarov, some other places that were around there. I think I read it the other night. It might have been around four or five places that were actually teaching the true meaning of spiritual life. And that is why God allowed communism to come. Because people say, oh, the communists are bad, the communists are bad, the communists are bad. Yes, they're bad, but the communists only gained power because spiritual life was so low that they, from the people's sins, from the people's slackness, that God allowed that to happen. We can say it's a punishment. Better to use the word penance, that God allowed that to happen to help the people come to the real spirit of Christianity because Russia had become really, really external, worldly, uh, Western, Western quite a lot. The theological schools in Russia before the revolution were teaching Western theology to a large extent. The students were learning Latin. So it was a cleansing, the same as Greece. Why did we have the Turks for 400 years and in some areas 500 years? Because, because they were not leading proper spiritual lives. They had lost the sense of orthodoxy. They had lost the sense, the purpose. If God doesn't allow these persecutions to occur, the church would just dissolve would fall apart. People would be lost completely. So this is like it makes a person struggle more and begin to really uh, confess the faith and enter more into the, you know, into the, tro- the proper spiritual life. So we are living in very bad times now, and that is why, which I'll explain later on, and that is why, as I've said before, the, the heresy of ecumenism We say, oh, it's the bishops, or it's the patriarchs, or it's this, it's that. You know, really, that's not really their fault, even though they'll give word. It's really, as the elders say, it's the people, it's everyone, because spirituality has fallen low. If spirituality was high, who would accept such stupidity that the churches and praying with heretics and all these things that they say and do? No one would really accept it. It would, be, it would be rejected. But why do people run to those type of things? Because they haven't got the proper spiritual life. And that's why these, these heresies are coming into the church. The more the church becomes healthy, the more the heresies just bounce off. They don't have an effect. So people have to understand because we want to say, oh, it's the bishop or it's this or it's that. But we have to really understand that it's the church in general. 
And that's why Oda Paisio says that when an individual Christian becomes holy, that makes that brings more of the church, as I would say, we increases the church in holiness, even though we say the church obviously is, is the body of Christ, that people become more and more holy. And the more, more and more people become holy, the more the church fights off the heresy. So when you say, oh, it's their fault and their fault, no, what we say is let's blame ourselves and say, am I spiritual? Am I leading the proper spiritual life? And if we're not leading the proper spiritual life, then we could be a cause also of the heresy. Now, we'll come to that later on. I'll read more about that. But you must also accept that secular people are trapped in a worse sickness. Who knows what that sickness is when Elder Porphyrus is saying to the psychiatrist, yeah, Christians do have this feeling of guilt and wrong things, but secular people, worldly people, have something worse than that, which is, starts with P, pride. He says that secular people are trapped in a worse sickness called pride, whereas religious guilt those who are religious people and they feel guilt in the wrong way, of those close to Christ, leaves when the person repents and confesses, but truly repents. The pride of the worldly person who lives apart from Christ does not leave. If the person's proud, what's there for him to think of any improvement? He's already good. Pride, he said, yes, Guilt in the Christians is bad, but when the person learns how to repent and confess properly, then his guilt will be wiped off. But the worldly person who's in pride, they don't change. Then the person who's writing this account about the elder, he goes on and says, These positions of the elder cleared up various questions I had within myself regarding the psychological problems of the Christian life. So there are psychological problems. I don't know if people believe that or because we're Christians or because we're orthodox or whatever, that we don't have psychological problems. Psychological problems are there because we've got a mind. Like the body gets sick. It's like if a person has a bad heart and they're Christian, people don't say, oh, how can he have a bad heart if he's orthodox? We don't say that. But as soon as someone has a mental issue, then people say, oh, how can he have a mental issue if he's orthodox or if he's Christian? The mind is part of the body. So the mind can become sick, our bodies can become sick, and our souls obviously become sick, and everything's interrelated. So this person's saying, I realise that the elder wanted us to avoid pride. He wanted us to avoid dressing up ourselves in self-justifying Christian Phariseeism of virtue which is the worst thing, for a person to have the spirit of the Pharisees. Now, we might say we don't have, there's no way we can have the spirit of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were evil people. The Pharisees were the ones who caused Christ to be crucified. They became, even though they were religious, and even though they were great followers of the Old Testament, they believed in the true God, but yet, because of their pride, because of their vainglory, they actually became God-haters, God-murderers, as we say in Greek. The God, which is how you say in Greek, the God? 
Theophony. Um, anyway, God, God, yeah, God murderers. Christ murderers. The Pharisees fell into that even though they were religious people. Why? Because of their vainglory. That's why, as Christians, we have to really look out for this spirit within ourselves. And we have to understand that all of us suffer, some less, some more, from the spirit of Phariseeism. If you don't think you've got it, then you, as St. Ignatius, the Russian saint says, that means you are truly sick. And as we'll read from within this, some quotes that I've got here, a person who doesn't see their vainglory, a person who doesn't see at times that they're like Pharisees, that we do our cross, we like people to look at us, we want people to think that we're special and spiritual, that we have virtues, all this is a spirit of that. If you're aware of it and it makes you sick and you repent of it, then that's okay. But if you're not aware of it, how can you then repent? That's not okay. But more on that as we go on. So this person continues on and says that the elder didn't want us to have this self-justification, this Christian Phariseeism, and he also didn't want us to be these self-condemning Christians, always, oh, how bad I am and how bad I am, but with a really ter terrified type of spirit of excessive guilt, which we'll come on to that more soon. I saw that the audacity of those who considered themselves pure, the person's writing, what he thinks the elder was trying to say, the audacity, like how cheeky for the person to actually think that they're pure, and also those others who have this fear and weakness, these timid people who also consider themselves guilty, he said, which is true because the father said, it's not different. The person who believes that he's good the Pharisee, and the person who believes that they're really bad and guilty, guilty, guilty type of spirit, he said these, in essence, are the same thing. They all belong to the same disease. And what's the same disease? Both belong to the same disease, which is pride. The person who overdoes his guilt, a person who, like Judas, cannot go and ask God forgiveness and have trust that God will forgive them, his problem, or her, stems from pride. And the person who is a Pharisee, who has the spirit of Pharisee, is also proud. Now, some of you will say, how does a person, if he's putting himself down, a person who feels guilty of what he's done, how is that pride? That sounds very confusing, that the person's proud. But, as St. John of Cronstein says, when we... When we pray to God after we've done a sin, which we do all the time, so we pray to God and say, God, forgive me or whatever, and we don't feel within our hearts God's grace, God's forgiveness. That means, he says, that we are proud. All the Holy Fathers say that. Why is it pride? I'll tell you why. The little story that I've given you before there was a holy elder in the, in the desert. This is an extreme thing, but this is all of us. It doesn't matter what sins it is. But the holy elder was in the desert, and he fell into a very big sin. Usually big sins mean sexual sins. So he fell into a really big sin, whatever it was. 
And the other fathers in the desert noticed that he was uh, doing his gardening and doing his work as if nothing had happened. So they became scandalised. They became shocked and said, what's this person? Is he insensitive? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he care about judgment? Doesn't he care about hell? Doesn't he care about God? What's, what's he doing there acting like that? So they went up to him and they said to him, why are you so carefree? Why are you so carefree after you've fallen into that big sin? And he said, well, that's what I am. That's what I do. That's who I am. I'm a weak person. I'm a negligent person, obviously wasn't careful. And I fell. But God, in his love, also forgives. This particular father had experienced God's love and forgiveness. And then the other fathers understood that they were wrong, but they, they actually thought that he was insensitive, that he was a horrible person for not feeling guilt or overdoing it. But he knew himself. When a person comes for confession and says, I fell, I fell into this sin, I fell and fell and fell, just, just calm down, stop. Sometimes they even think that you're impressed by their overdoing the fact that they've fallen and this and that. Stop. That spirit can come from pride. Because we become uh, frantic, we become like crazy, because we can't believe that we fell. How many people come to the church and they repent and they start a new life and they start reading books and they go to confession and they go to communion, they even do some prayers at home and they um, feel really good because they've now found Christ and they're struggling supposedly, but then suddenly, bum, they fall into a sin, something, whatever. They fall into a sin through God's permission. And all of a sudden, their faces go black, like Judas's. Why? Why do their faces go black? Because they had pride and they can't believe that they fell. Because they were up here. That's why the saints say, don't put yourself up high. Because when you fall, you're going to hurt yourself. Always have yourself low. So when you fall, it's not much of a bang. It's a little bit. If you're, if, you're, if you're down on the ground already, you can't really fall. So what does a down on the ground mean? A person who realises that they're sinful, a person who realises that they're going to fall into sins very easily, but, but of course they're struggling, and a person who realises God's love and mercy. And I guarantee you that 90... 90 should I go to not, maybe, I, maybe I might scandalise you. 99% of Orthodox Christians don't know how to repent. Which we will see as we go on. That's my, that's my statistic. Actually, I read it in a book of a very great theologian, Father John Romanidis, who said, he was talking about the Greek church in Greece, he says that only... Only one in 
Oof, what did he say? One, maybe he said one in a hundred. Maybe he said maybe one in a hundred, one every couple of hundred. He said, of people are actually leading a true spiritual life. What's a true spiritual life? One where we're perfect? No. What's a true spiritual life? We're going to see as we read the Holy Fathers in a minute. Because we are, we're really mixed up of what is spiritual life. We're really, really mixed up. So we'll go on. So uh, they are the same thing. So self-esteem, self-love, vainglory, in other words, Phariseeism, comes from pride, and the person who overdoes it with his guilt, 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 comes from pride. Judas had guilt. Judas had some repentance, one can say. He regretted. And the stupid Catholics there, they want to say, well, um, maybe we're wrong to put down Judas. Really, we've been so uh, horrible to him for 2,000 years because he did repent. Why are they saying that? Well, poor things, they don't really know because they've lost, they've really lost the meaning of spiritual life. You would expect them to say stupidities like that. You really would expect them to say that. They don't have an idea of spiritual life. And that's not being judgmental. That's being pained because they won't repent to come back to the Orthodox Church so that they can have the true tradition of what is spiritual life. And as Elder Porfirio said, remember when, he, um, when the Catholic monk came to him and the elder was saying to him, your monastery is like this and your mon- your, you know, you've got all these monks there and down the street you've got a nun's monastery. Uh, this is in, in Italy, wherever, wherever it was. And, and the, a Catholic monk goes, oh, I've never seen this in our church. And Elder Porfirio says, you never will. You cannot see it because these gifts are only given to the Orthodox Christians who have kept the traditions of the church and the therapeutic process of healing. They don't know that. And that's why they've got these, um, you know, what you go in at the railway stations, you go machines and you get your chisels or whatever you get and your chiquitos, violet crumbles, you put your coins in. Well, I don't know, in some segments of their church, they've got machines and you press the button I stole. And then you press another button to get your pendants. You say three Hail Marys and the two Our Fathers. Then you might press another button of another sin. That, you know, you might say, oh, that's silly. But it's not really silly for them because they don't understand what is orthodox spirituality. What is orthodox repentance and confession? What is the true spirit of the church? They don't understand that. And that's why you expect them to do that. And even their own priests, it's the same thing, and the people make fun of them because they say when you go to the priest and you confess something could be serious, they just say, say five Hail Marys, five Our Fathers, that's it. Things like that. Each penance that a priest gives for a Christian is dependent on the person's sickness and God's enlightenment. You can't have a standard penance. Anyone that steals gets the five Hail Marys. Anyone that kills, they get ten or whatever. These things are silly. So Judas became black from his guilt because, and even though he repented, because he couldn't humble himself to come to Christ and ask forgiveness. And let us not, all of us, be like that. And sometimes we are like Judas at times. If we feel in ourselves, all of us, including myself, if we feel in ourselves a difficulty to repent, 
and to trust in God's forgiveness, then we're Judas's. Then we're, then we're the Pharisees. Like the Pharisees. We have to be careful of that spirit. It kills the soul. A truly faithful Christian is freed from guilt, says this person, by confession and remission of sins. Yes, confession. People go to confession, like I've said. Remission of sins, even if the priest reads the prayer, that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be forgiveness of sins unless the person, as St. Nicodemus says, the Athenite, there are certain conditions. What are the conditions? One, that the person has true sorrow for their sins, a contrite and humble heart, true repentance, that the person, which is forgotten these days, has made a decision not to sin again. That's why the prayers that the priest says, which, which are left out these days, it says, from this day on, you must never fall into this sin again. You must try, etc. Now, I asked one of the fathers there at the monastery to photocopy this, this thing here because I think we forget that orthodoxy is not reading books. Orthodoxy is not theory. Orthodoxy is courage, a fight, martyrdom, life. When a person becomes a monastic, a monk or a nun, when a person even becomes baptised, and when a person goes to confession, it's the same thing. The person has to say, I have made a decision that from now on I'm going to fight sin. I'm going to fight the devil. I'm not going to do this again. And that's missing. And St. Nicodemus says that has to be as part of the confession. Not just that we're sorry, but that we also are determined never to do it again. If we fall, obviously we'll come back again. But we are really determined. We really feel that we don't want to fall into that sin again. Then, of course, we confess, which is another part of, um, of reconciliation with God. And the last part is that the priest gives a penance, something that the priest gives for the person to help them in the road of becoming healed and receiving God's forgiveness. We know in the church that people confess their sins and for years and years and years were doing things, they were, they were doing some type of penance to receive God's forgiveness. But one would think, didn't they receive God's forgiveness when the priest read them? No, not necessarily. We receive this, this prayer under the condition that you will do these penances. A penance could be that you don't commune for a number of years. That's, that actually can be soul-saving. A penance can be for you to take care of a sick person. A penance could be to give money to the poor. A penance can be to visit people in jail. There's a lot of ways that the, the spiritual father has at his disposal to give to the person to help him. Fasting, more than normal. Prayers, more than normal. Prostrations, more than normal. These all help the person to be sanctified and as a result of that receive forgiveness which may occur later on 
after the day that you've confessed. doesn't matter if you've confessed. And that's why St. Nicodemus says, someone asked St. Nicodemus, what happens if a person's confessed a sin, but later on he feels from himself a repentance for that sin that he never felt before? And St. Nicodemus says, this is the true repentance, go and confess it again. That's the true repentance. Even if you've already confessed it, a lot of times forgiveness can come later on. But we're going to do all that, in, in, God willing, in months to come. But anyway, let's go to the tonsham. The tonsham is when a, when a person becomes a monk. Let's see, to see whether orthodox is theory. It says, why have you come here, brother, sister, whatever, falling down a second time before the holy table? First time was the baptism when we were all baptised, I desire the most perfect ascetic life, Reverend Father. And says, do you desire to be counted worthy of the angelic schema and to be ranked with the monastics, etc.? Yes, Reverend Father. And then he says, truly you have chosen a good and blessed work, but only if you accomplish it. It's great that you want to become a monastic, says the spiritual father, before the tonsha. Yeah, that's great. If you complete the life and be saved, obviously, well, what's the point in just becoming to wear the black? For good works are wrought with labour and achieved with suffering. When we do good works, it's labour. It's not easy. Don't have this spirit where we say, oh, it's so easy to do good works. I enjoy it. Good works are wrought with labour and achieved with suffering. The devil does not like us to do good works. If we do good works and it's easy, I gave once a person a penance... And I said to them years ago, there's some sin, and I said, why don't you um, go to a nursing home and why don't you take care of... Why don't you go like once a fortnight or something like that because your sin's quite serious. I want you to go once a fortnight or once a... Go and go to an old people's home, an orthodox one, so Russian, Serbian, Greek, whatever, and volunteer, spend some hours there. Like, you know what it means for an old person there, a sick person who can't even who can't even brush their hair out of their eye like my mother was, was, and how people can't even feed themselves and how it is for some person, just for someone to sit there and talk to them. See, those things are important. I said, if you really, as we say in the Aussie language, fair income, if you really mean that you are repentant for the sin that you've done, are you willing to do that particular penance? And the answer I got was, no, I can't do that. And then I said, you can't do it? That's good. Neither will you receive forgiveness because you don't want to do it. See, when we're sorry, it's not enough to go and confess. That's why we read in the prologue, we read of a person who, he had a horse or a mule, whatever, and it accidentally killed a child. And then he became so guilty, he confessed it, and then I think he went to the patriarch of one place, and the patriarch said, you're forgiven, whatever. It wasn't enough for him. He couldn't calm down. So he went to another patriarch, Jerusalem. Then he went over to Constantinople. Then he went here. Then he went there. And he went to all these patriarchs asking, I, I don't feel forgiveness. What's wrong? Now, is he the one that we said before that he's too proud? Maybe he's like Judas? No. He really understood that just confessing is not enough. He needs a penance. He needs something that he wants to do. To, you might say... 
the Protestants could even say this. They say, but God's forgiveness is for free. It comes from the blood that Christ shed on the cross. Yes, God's forgiveness is free. We can do nothing to obtain that forgiveness. However, to have access to that grace, to have access to that forgiveness, that great gift, we have to become more prepared. We have to be in a certain state. We don't, and I don't mean to be blasphemous, go and say God's forgiveness um, is, is for free and I'm forgiven like really like as if it's nothing. I'm forgiven. I'm going to be forgiven. That's why we see the saints for years and years and years struggled and did certain penances. Elder Savas, who's in the Contemporary Selects of Manathos, Volume 2, he was a great spiritual father. Uh, someone came to him, a monk, he was from Manathos, and a monk came to him and said, I said something really bad. He swore somehow, something bad. And um, back in those days, that was, um, he died in 1908. This could have happened in the, back in the 19th century, in 1880, 1890. So he says to him, I will read you the prayer under one condition. I want you to do a penance. He goes, yes, Father, anything, because I feel so guilty of what I've done by that bad thing, whatever, whatever it was that he said. Because I want you to start from the church step to, I don't know what, was a certain distance, I, don't know, I can't remember now, might have been inside the church, I want you to lick the, the ground from there to there. And then the, the monk said, oh, that's what an easy penance. I'll do that to, to, so, I can, so I can be in a better position to obtain God's forgiveness. I'll do that. So he got on the ground and he started to lick, 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 and then he, he licked it. And after that, his tongue blew up because it got infected, right? So it wasn't that easy. And, uh, but at the end, after suffering for all those months, whatever he suffered, that showed that he suffered with patience, he did the obedience, that then God's grace can come and give him forgiveness, even though the priest has read the prayer. And we have a lot of examples of these, what's called in Greek, epithemia, in English, penances, which don't really much exist anymore. Um, good spiritual fathers give penances, very, very important. And if they don't give penances, ask for it or go to one that gives them. So we go here. Um, have you been forced to come? No. Do you renounce the second time the world? Yes, Reverend Father. Will you be obedient and will you stay in the ascetic life until your last breath? Yes, help, God helping me, Reverend Father. This is what's the questions asked to a person who becomes a monastic. Do you vow a second time to keep yourself in virginity? The person may have already lost their virginity before, but they start again. They say, okay, from now on, after your tonsure, you keep yourself um, pure. Yes, God helping me. And do you vow a second time, even unto death, to be obedient to your spiritual father and abbot? Yes. Now this part. Will you endure all the sorrows and restraints of monastic life for the sake of their heavenly kingdom? Yes, God helping me. And it goes on and on and on. Questions and things like that. Are you willing to be spat on? Are you willing to be persecuted? Are you willing to be uh, slandered, etc., etc., etc.? This is not, orthodoxy is not a theory, not a, a philosophy like the ancient philosophers and some philosophers that exist now. This is life. Why do I read that to you? 
Baptism the same. Do you renounce Satan? I renounce him. Do you renounce Satan? I renounce etc. Do you um, renounce all his works and all his glory? I renounce him. Then spit on him, blow, spit, etc. What does that mean? It means that in orthodoxy, in the spiritual life, we have to make a decision to struggle. Not just to read books. Not just to listen to chanting while we're driving the car. Not just to um, come to a talk like you are now. Not just to come to church. And not just to go and confess in a half-hearted way or have communion. It's more than that. Orthodoxy is a true, difficult struggle. I brought that up now, but I can't remember why I actually brought it up. Um, do you remember? Does anyone? No, I don't think. No, I don't remember now. Doesn't matter. It was important anyway, uh, and we will come back to that soon. A true. I think, yeah, because Judas didn't have the will to struggle. And that's what I'm saying. When you confess, it's the same thing. The priest says, are you going to now force yourself not to sin? It's not just go and get a prayer read. Baptism is the same. Tonch is the same. That's what spiritual life is. It's this, our will to fight sin, to struggle. Judas didn't do that. He became paralysed. It's called spiritual paralysis. Peter, he didn't become paralysed. He ran to Christ and repented. And don't think that I'm trying to spread some heresy about that thing about that God's forgiveness is for free. That Christ's sacrifice on the cross gave forgiveness of sins for free to all people. But a lot of times we are not in the position to receive it because of our spiritual disposition, our heart, our soul. It's not attuned to be able to receive that forgiveness. And that's why the church has these penances and fasts, prostrations, etc. These things help the person to receive this free forgiveness. Does that make it clear? Uh, the elder showed us the road that avoided evil, that sin, and worse, pride of one's virtue, and led us to the best one, to the humility of virtue. For that reason, he tried to protect the genuineness of humility from the danger of being distorted. There is genuine humility and there's false humility. False humility is what's called in Greek tapinologia, which means, tapino means humble, logo means word. So we have humble words. I'm the worst. I'm a worm. I'm, I'm nothing. But you say, but the saints spoke like that. But when the saints spoke like that, they meant it. They actually meant it. They experienced through their falls, through their suffering, through everything that they experienced and, and, and attained true humility. What have we gone through to have true humility? So we've got to be careful. Don't use these humble words which is sick. Remember, I think I told you a story once of this lady. She used to always say that she was, um, she says, I am nothing but a worm. 
I'm a worm. Squaliki, in other words, that's what she used to say. That's a Greek word. So I call this the squaliki syndrome. It's called the worm syndrome. So he goes, I'm, I am the worst of them all. And then once someone told her something contrary to her will, and she began to her teeth, like in those joke shops where those teeth go like that, her teeth started to like that, and she was saying, no one's going to tell me what to do. And I, I wanted to say to her, you must be the first worm with teeth because, <laughs> because worms don't have teeth. But I wouldn't like to put my finger near them because I'm sure I would have lost one of my fingers from the way she was, the way she was going like that. And that's it. She's the, that's why I call it the worm syndrome, the worm with teeth syndrome. So um, we go on for that reason. He tried, yes, so we should humble, but we should not speak in a false manner, Elder Porfirio says. Don't speak in a false manner. There is a difference between being truly humble and being humble only in speech. The, when we're humble only in speech, it stinks. It's disgusting. It's soul-destroying. It's demonic. And the demons make fun of us. True humility, as Elder Frem says, from, the, from Arizona there in America, the Athenite, he says that true humility comes from the experience of our sins, of the experience of our infirmities, of our weaknesses, of our falls, etc., of our, that we are nothing without God's help. And that comes with spiritual life after many years. Because when, when you read his book, and I'm going to buy his books, I'm going to buy quite a few of them, when you read his books, he says, in, when he gives his, his writing, I think it's extracts from epistles that he wrote to people, and he says in there, and pray for me who am a worm or something like that. He actually, I think, even uses those words. And, you know, when he says it, and from what he writes, it's real. But when we say it, right, it's a, a, an act, and we shouldn't do it, unless you truly feel it from within. The elder, with his teaching and more so with his life, tended his flock and led them to pasture of love and humility. He himself was humble, believing that he himself was nothing. See, that, that's what a humble person is. Believing that he himself is nothing. Not in the spirit that I said in the beginning of the talk of those who are saying, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, in that really demonic, um, proudful way. This humility is true. They believe that they're nothing. They believe that they're sinful, the saints, but they're in communion with God. Different spirit. As he said, everything, and he believed that whatever he had, the elder believed whatever he had was not his, but a gift from God. That's, a, that's the mark of a saint. If we have a virtue, if we think the virtue is from ourselves, then it's not a virtue. If we think the virtue is from God, that we believe it came from God, then that's a virtue. Let us now start to read some fathers of the church. Some elders, some have been canonised, some haven't been canonised. And let's look at what they say, what they wrote. And when you read these things, don't just read it and go, oh, isn't that pretty? Or isn't that nice? We have to read it. And as the pamphlet I'm going to give you today, I've got two pamphlets. One is on spiritual study. 
which is by Elder Paisios, the Athenite, a couple of pages there, three pages, and he talks about that we don't read spiritual books as an enjoyment, as if we're reading a novel, but put into practice. And the other one, I just found that I thought it was good. On television, comments by various saints and holy elders, even though it's not in the theme today, but I thought it was good, so you can take that as well. So let's have a look at the first part. This is Elder Anthemos of Manathos. He departed this life in 1996, and I thank God that I actually met him. Um, well, I never went to go to, to meet him. I was there at, I think it was St. Ansket, I can't remember, somewhere there down there in Manathos, and I was visiting there, and all of a sudden this monk came up to me and he began to hug me and I know I found it a bit strange, I didn't know what was happening and I didn't even know who he was. And later on I found out that he was a spiritual father, a confessor in Mount Athos there, one of the many confessors they have. And um, he came up to me and he started to hug me and he said to me, I think I've said this before, don't and I was only around 25 at the time, 26, don't lose everything for the body. And now being new to the church, I wasn't sure what exactly he meant. He goes, this is the body. This is going to go in the grave one day. Don't lose your soul. Don't lose paradise. Don't lose Christ for the body. Struggle to keep yourself because obviously one of the problems with the youth today is that people fall. So that's obviously the mentality that he had that he probably did that to a lot of young people that came. And it actually did move me quite a lot. It, um, um, when someone just comes up out of the blue, which, I, as I said, I never went to find him. I never even knew he existed. I went and looked for other holy people, but I didn't know about him. And later on, there was a, an article about him in Orthodox Word, I think, Orthodox word, yeah, and they said he was quite a holy person. See, holy people talk about the main thing is salvation, as we'll see soon, as time goes on. We must, he says, we must not give any significance to our good deeds or praise ourselves, which we've already said. Simple. Don't observe your good deeds. Don't let your right, know what you're left, as Christ says, don't let yourself see what you are doing. Don't praise yourself. Not, it's not good spiritually. Again, the same elder, Elder Anthemus, again, he says, God allows us to sin so that we can humble ourselves. Otherwise, we cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's like he's saying, only through sin do we enter the kingdom of heaven. How does that make sense? Sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? St. Paul says the same. That through sin, one receives sanctification. What does he mean by that? And what he, what he means is that because we're so proud by nature, by our fallen nature, that when we fall into sin, it, it, we get knocked in the head, we become humble and say, look what I've done. And through being humble you enter the kingdom of heaven. Not that you have to sin to enter. It's just that the sin helps us to be humble and by being humble, you go to heaven. Elder Macarius of Optina, which is one of the elders there in front that I have on the Anoloyum. There's 14 Optina elders. 
on that on that icon. Elder Makaris was one famous uh, elder in Russia, and he says our achievements must never seem large in our eyes. When we do things, we shouldn't, as we said before, look at them and say, "Oh wow, look what I've done." The only thing we should really look at is at our failures. Look at our failures, but not our achievements. But this must never lead us to despondency. And I looked up the word despondency and to understand it in a more orthodox way. Despondency is when a person becomes hopeless of their salvation, hopeless that they're going to improve, when a person feels despair, when a person has melancholy, depression, things like that, when a person's got sadness, when a person uh, feels like um, that he's been defeated. It's like, oh, there's no point. I can't do anything. The devil's too strong. I'm too weak. That's this, that's that. That's called despondency. That's a cancer. That's the worst thing in spiritual life. Yes, we see our faults, like Elder Porfirio said as well, but don't get to the point where you become overwhelmed and have these symptoms. If you've got hopelessness, no good. If you've got despair, no good. If you've got this sadness or that you feel defeated, that you can't get up, you can't struggle anymore, that is all a no-no in spiritual life. Again, Elder Makari says, you should know by now that great storms of passions are allowed to attack us and overwhelm us whenever we willfully with pleasure fall into pride. Now, I love this part because this is what I was trying to say before. A lot of us believe that spiritual life is something which is enjoyable. Yes, there is joy in the spiritual life. Little traces of it here and there. Too much joy can, you know, like too much sugar is no good for us. Too much joy, too much spiritual sweetness for those who are not experienced can become uh, a reason for the person to go to hell because we don't have the humility. God gives us spiritual joy when we're humble. If we're proud and he gives us spiritual joy, then our minds become all inflated and we start thinking, oh, look, I've got joy, I'm great, and things like that. And he says here that you should know by now that great storms of passions are allowed to attack us and overwhelm us. This is what spiritual life is. Now let me tell you what a spiritual person is. This is what I look for in a person who's leading a spiritual life. Not if they're reading books, just reading books. Not even if they go to confession. Not even if they're communing. Not even if they're doing prayers even though those things are necessary. But a sign of a spiritual person is a person who looks like in a worldly sense, I'll say it in a worldly sense, a person who's gone, who's gone ten rounds with, um, with Muhammad Ali or someone in the old days. Of course, now he can't do it because of his problem. But whoever other great boxers, I don't follow those things. But it's just imagine you being in a ring there, however you say it, with a boxer. Right? And the boxer just steps on your feet and he uses you as like that. Bang, 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 bang like that. Ten rounds. Now you can imagine how you, how you feel. You would feel that you're knocked out. You'd feel completely smashed. That's spiritual life. Spiritual life is what? Not the boxer hitting you. This is what it is. 
The spiritual life is when you've been attacked by passions of lust, of anger, of jealousy, of hate, of vainglory, of pride, of your mouth just saying stupid things or saying ridiculous things. A person who's struggling with the passions looks like he's gone for a boxing uh, match. They're knocked out. But no, we don't think of that. No, that, that's not spiritual life. How can that be spiritual life? The person's bad to have all those things. Spiritual life is when we go to church calm and it's like, the, it's like we're floating on clouds and everyone looks at us, look how good we are. We do our cross perfectly, do our bows, 90 degrees, and then we, we, go, and have the, we, we go and confess and the priest is impressed with us. And then we commune. And it's as if Fox Television's there um, uh, filming us so the world can see us having communion. Reading books in our bed and really enjoying it. Spiritual life is having a halo around you, an imagined halo. You can always use Photoshop, get a photo of yourself, and you can put a photo, you can put a halo, and that way you can have an icon of yourself. That's what people believe spiritual life is. We're laughing, but that's, you know, but it is funny, but it's also sad because this is what we do. This is what we think spiritual life. Spiritual life's not that, where a person looks like he's possessed sometimes. So we go to church. And, we, and those people who think that's spiritual life, they go to church and they see the priest, he might get nervous or angry. And they go, oh, how can he be a priest? And if they go to monasteries and see there what's going on, oh, the fights and the, and the um, arguments a lot of times, the disobedience. People that are, when it's time for the bell to ring for church and the monastics are just knocked out in their rooms and they don't even want to get up. It's like they're going to get a lethal injection. Like that's how bad it is. That is spiritual life. That's fighting the passions. But that's not what we think it is. And that's why there's no spiritual progress. As long as we think that spiritual life is enjoying spiritual books and coming and listening to a talk and doing communion and the confession and the praying and fasting, all oh, the fasting, people have as their aim to try and do the whole fast if they can. They feel good about that. That's spiritual life because they did the fast. I saw a um, special once of, I don't know what it was, they're, of, um, they're talking about the Muslims, how they fast for, for their Ramadan there. And they had um, one of their, I don't know, what do you call those people? Mullahs, I don't know what they're called. And he, and he says that he likes the Ramadan period because this is his chance to lose weight. Right? So it filmed him on his exercise bike, doing the exercise. And a woman came to me once years ago and she said, Oh, you know, Father, I want you to help me in my life. I go, How? You know, I want you to be strict with me. I've got a weakness for toast and butter. 
and I want you to put a restriction on me that I don't have toast and butter so I can lose weight. Other people use the fast period as a way to lose weight. That's not what fasting's about. The fast period is not so that we can lose weight. It might happen, but not necessarily, especially if you're eating three, three loaves of bread. It's fasting, but it's not going to make you skinny. So, and, you know, and sugar and things like that. So people use the fast, one, to make themselves vainglorious, to say, oh, look, I'm doing the fast. I can feel good about it and show off. But they're also doing the fast, so they, some people say, so I can become healthy or I can lose weight. That's not the purpose of the fast. The purpose of the fast is to kill our passions. The purpose of the fast is, as Christ said, this type, meaning the demons, only come out with prayer and fasting. In other words, when we fast, it's like we're saying to the demons, come and get me. It's like we are actually challenging him. He doesn't like when we fast. If we fast properly, if we fast to lose weight, or if we fast to show off, He'll help you. He's not going to go against you. And that's why I say to people that fast, I go, so during the 50 days that you fasted, did you have any desire like for a cake or for a, an, uh, um, a piece of steak or something? They go, not at all. <laughs> it's amazing. I, 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 um, I'm very surprised. I go, no, not at all. And they think they're good. But that shows that they're not really spiritually struggling. Now, a person who's really struggling, right, he's not going to just think about a steak. He's going to taste it. It's going to be like it's in his mouth. And he's going to want that. And he's going to want to eat. He's going to want to break the fast. He's going to struggle, etc., etc. This is what spiritual life is. We're very confused. Elder Macarius says, we mustn't fall into despondency. So when we're being hit with the passions by the demons, we mustn't fall into despondency. This is the essence of spiritual life. That's what I look for. If I speak to someone, I look for that. When I used to ring up Greece to um, a spiritual father many years ago when I was younger, a layperson, and the first thing he used to say, he goes, oh, not how are you, not in, in that sense, or what's that. He used to say to me in Greek, pospai oawonas, which means how is your struggle going? Every, every single time, how's your struggle? How's your struggle? How's your struggle? And, you know, being a bit young and then and didn't not understand much, I didn't fully understand what he meant. Be, but this was he was, a, he was an abbot of a monastery and he was well connected with Man Alphos, used to go often. He was in the world, but in the monastery in Greece. And he understood that spiritual life is struggle. That's what spiritual life is. That's what we look at. That's what all the Holy Fathers look at. Struggle, struggle, struggle. We have to get that into our heads today. And that's what I'm trying to do to inspire. I mean, if I say, if I say a, a joke, if I say something on purpose negative, I'm using that not against you people. I'm using it against even myself. So don't think that it's, oh, he's been rude to us. It's to all of us. All of us suffer from these problems. Elder Macarius says, so you should know, that's what it means. And he says, why does these passions occur? Why do these passions attack us and overwhelm us? In other words, we even fall into sin. Why? Because, he says, we um, are fallen to pride. 
because of our pride, because of our self-praise, we love to praise ourselves, because we idolise ourselves, and because we have a high opinion of our own intellectual powers, of our thinking, of our brains, of our intelligence. And he said another thing which is not good, when we take pleasure in viciously humbling others intentionally, when we like putting people down, we enjoy purposely putting people down, making fun of them, whether in front of them or not. All this is, which we all do, all this is bad and God allows us to fall to, for these passions to attack us so that we can humble ourselves, to realise it's because of what I'm doing, it's because of my pride, it's because I'm showing off, it's because I love myself, it's because I put people down, it's because I judge people. That's why all these things are happening. I remember a young a woman who had some issues, a bit of mental issues there, and the demons used to really attack her brain and used to... Uh, make her like feel like she was going to explode with thoughts, 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 the real lot of hate towards people and um, judging, but really to the point that she became dysfunctional. If she went to a doctor, I suppose they would say that she's going to go on medication because she's got some type of uh, you know, intrusive thoughts. I don't know what they think. And some people, their thoughts are that bad that they need medication. But let's look at her. She says sometimes it lasts for days. She goes, it's like I'm going through hell of all these bad thoughts. And she goes, the only, you know the only way I can get rid of it? I go, how? The only way I can get rid of them is when I humble myself and blame myself, then I calm down. See? When I humble myself, when I put myself down, when I repent of myself, of my own things, then I calm down. The medicine is simple. Here it is, the Elder Macarius. Humility, a sincere humbling of, of ourselves. This alone can bring relief. When we humble ourselves, it brings relief. It brings uh, that we have meekness and that gives peace. So when we're having these boxing matches in our spiritual life, as, as Elder Ephraim says, and all the saints say as well, that there are times where there's consolation. There's a calming. There's a bit of a... A, a rest period and then you've got to build yourself up struggle, struggle, struggle ready for the next go that's spiritual life then we go to number 5 um, the Holy Numata Archbishop Balam who is Numata of Russia not, not popular but it doesn't matter He's, I, love, I love what he writes he goes the true spiritual attitude is to seek self-reproach repentance patience contrition and a firm and undeceived trust in God's mercy. That's what I said at the beginning, which is what Judas never had. He didn't have an undeceived, what we say, trust in God's mercy. The true spiritual attitude, the proper spiritual life, is when we put ourselves down, when we repent, when we have patience during our trials and sicknesses, etc., when we have contrition of heart. He goes, at the last judgment... The righteous, the true saints, in other words, the righteous, will be recognised only by their humility and their considering themselves worthless and not by good deeds, even if they've done them. So if we think we're going to get into heaven because of our good deeds, that's not going to happen. 
because a lot of people can do good deeds with pride. The Holy Numata, he says, that we will be allowed into heaven if we're humble. Not if we've read a lot of books, even though those books help us to become humble. Not just if we've communed, but if we commune properly, yes, obviously. Prayers, fasting, the doing of the commandments, all these things have one purpose, as we will read later on, to help us attain humility. And it's humility that's going to get us into heaven, not just our good deeds, as we say. They're done. Well, we'll read that more later. And St. John of Cronstan says, there's absolutely nothing for a Christian to be proud of when accomplishing works of righteousness. That's when he's doing good works. For he's saved and constantly delivered from every evil through faith alone. Without me, he quotes from the Bible, where Christ says, without me you can do nothing. If we've done anything good, truly good, it's from God. He gave us the ability to do it. Without him we can do nothing. How can we take pride in good in a goodness that's not ours? So the, all the saints say it's really monstrous and stupid, it's ridiculous to actually take pride in anything good that we've done when it was only done because God helped us to do it in the first place. That's how the saints thoughts. Do we think like that? No. When we do good deeds, what happens? Straight away we become proud. And we think it's from us. The saints didn't have that. They had that, this, that it came from God. Now, there are Christians in the world who I know struggle, and they do have that to some degree. They fluctuate. That's what spiritual life's about. We have to force ourselves to understand through our struggles that whatever good we do comes from God. That's it. We'll have the break now. And um, 7.34. Was there just one question before we um, go to the break on what we've read? Anyone? Is it confusing? I hope I haven't confused everyone. Is it confusing? I, we do a spiral. In education, it's called spiral learning. Spiral learning is you do a little bit and then you do the same thing again but a bit more detail, then you go a bit more detail. So what I do is I do a little bit and then we keep on going around. Actually, we're repeating the same thing but using more examples until we have a better picture. That's more effective. So we will be repeating ourselves and doing things but adding things as we go. Yes? Are there people who believe... There are people who's there that like that. As a, no, Judas, we know that Judas went to hell because he didn't obtain God's forgiveness because of his pride. The Catholics believe, uh, they start to believe, some of their theologians, that um, he should be not put down the way he's put down and perhaps to be looking at him, I think, as a saint, from what I've heard. I think it was on the radio someone told me. Is that what you read? Yeah, I heard. Oh, yes. What did, what did you hear exactly? Well, exactly what you just said. I oh. think it was, it was one girl, it was 10, 15 years ago, I was amazed that uh, they actually didn't want to think of him as a saint. Yeah. Because he repented for what he did. But not understanding that that's not enough. All of us, a lot of times, unless you're some, some far-gone serial killer that just kills and doesn't care, in general, uh, people are sorry for what they've done, but sorry is one level 
attaining forgiveness is another. He went as far as being sorry. He regretted what he did. And that's where most of us are a lot of times. We have to go up from that. We have to, we have to gain access to that free forgiveness that God has given us through the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. That's what spiritual life is, to gain access to that grace. Nothing else on that? Yes? You mentioned the saint or a monk in, I think you said Arizona? Elder, Elder Ephraim. He's a, he's a spiritual child of Elder Joseph, the Hesychus. Have you heard of him? Yes. Yeah. And he had a few spiritual children. One of them was Elder Ephraim. And Elder Ephraim, after the Elder, Elder Joseph died, I think, I'm not sure before. Anyway, he became the abbot of the Philothel Monastery. From his monks, he re-established brotherhoods in another three monasteries in Manathos. He also was the um, spiritual father of a number of monasteries in Greece. But then in the 1980s, he started going to America and Canada. And then in the 1990s, I think early, he established monasteries all over America and a few in Canada. He's established over there 18 monasteries and he's got another around 10 or more in Greece that he is involved with, makes it around 28 monasteries. He is a true elder. Now, he's persecuted. There's a lot of things on the internet. They put him down and things like that. But, you know, even Orthodox priests, that are jealous or stupid. And they don't understand that you can't establish 28 monasteries I'll give you an example of that to understand. If one of us starts to lead, as I'm trying to get you tonight, starts to lead a spiritual life, just as an individual or as a family, tries to lead a true spiritual life, not an external one, a true spiritual life, the demons will fall on that family, on that person, etc. That's for a lay person. But we know from the Holy Fathers that the demons would leave a hundred lay people as long as he can make a monk or a nun to fall into sin. When a monastery is established, it's like they're declaring war against the demons. And a monastery is the backbone of orthodoxy. For this person to have established 28 monasteries is not a small thing. Unfortunately, there are Orthodox priests and bishops who actually say all these negative things and put him down and say he's deceived or there's a cult following and all these stupidities. There's, those things can't exist. A person who's leading a spiritual life, especially in a monastery, can't be faking things because of the warfare that occurs. If it's not real, you will fall. And we'll go on to that more. He's the spiritual father of the monastery St. Anthony's in Arizona. And I want to get uh, his book, which is a fantastic book on spiritual struggle. I've, I've actually got some of his quotes today. Um, he is a modern day, uh, a present day holy elder. So let's now have a break. We'll continue in about 10 minutes. Okay, we can start now. I will continue on with Archbishop Balaam, the new martyr. Just one more section, then we'll go on to another section. 
the Archbishop there, the, the new martyr, says, we are all insane over self-esteem. In other words, we are all mad. We are crazy with our self-love and self-esteem. And therefore, when we correct ourselves a little in one way or another, we at once give value to ourselves and without knowing it, we become progressed Pharisees. We've got to be very careful because, because we are part of the world and a lot of people read newspapers or magazines and TV and look at the TV and we often hear that it's healthy to have self-esteem. And now we're seeing here that the saint and all the other saints are speaking negatively about self-esteem. There's a, there's a big move now that we have to try and uh, instil in our children self-esteem. The only problem is that's been happening for decades and a lot of those children who have gone through that are quite, are quite mentally ill and quite depressed. Suicide rates for teenagers have, have increased a lot. And you people would find it complicated, because I was speaking to one gentleman before, you can't get answers for everything and there is so much happening in the world, there are so many messages, there are so many different things that are going on that a person can't have an answer to everything at this moment. That takes time. I don't have the answers for everything. If you, I mean, if you go to a clairvoyant elder, great elder, uh, they have answers. Uh, that's why we read their books to see how do they deal with issues. With time, with struggle, God begins to open up our spiritual eyes to begin to see things differently. We learn things from experience, you know, and through asking God for help. But to expect answers for everything, it's not going to happen and it's actually not good. It's actually a deception to even want that. We can't have that. Spiritual life is not something, like a lot of you people are, ed are educated as well, and you believe that because you went to university or wherever, you read books and you're able to learn quite a lot about a certain subject. And you come into the church and believe that you can use the same technique in the church. It doesn't work like that. The church is not theory. The church is practical and it takes time. And the more we struggle... The more we cleanse ourselves of our passions with God's help, the more then we become, we are able to receive God's enlightenment. That might take 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, whatever. So we, you know, we can't get answers to everything. However, the main thing is to struggle looking for salvation. So self-esteem from an orthodox perspective, is not good. When people talk about self-esteem, they say you have to have self-esteem because of all the good things you do or because you're great. And they trick people. And they say the most ridiculous things, like one person who's a teacher when he went to college, to university, to learn how to teach, and they told him how important it is to teach your children self-esteem. So they showed him a video of a child that was told to look in the mirror and to say that how great she is and how fantastic she is. 
and how beautiful she is. Have you heard those things? You're beautiful. You're fantastic. You're great. The person may not be good looking. I mean, statistically, really only around 10% of the population have perfect bodies and perfect facial features, etc. And the other, there's another great percentage, 40 or 50, who make up their own faces through plastic surgery and things like that. And then there's the other people. That's only a few people that have that. To go and teach a child and say to the child, who's not, even if it is, it's bad, but it's a who's not, after a while the child's going to know and they go, oh no, we just keep on praising, you're smart, you're beautiful, you're gifted, you're good, you're great. All these things make these children sick. They're sick. Now, I don't expect you to understand it all tonight, and you, and you won't. It will take you a long time. But at least get an idea. Let's have a start. Self-esteem in the spiritual life, as we've already said, is not healthy. It drives God away from our souls. It produces pride, and pride drives away God's grace and brings in demonic spirit into our hearts. And that's why the saints did all that they can. Let's see what he says. We are all insane over self-esteem and therefore when we correct ourselves a little in one way or another we at once give value to ourselves and without knowing it we become progressed pharisees we praise ourselves for what grace has done but this is from god's mercy not because of our achievements so we can even say that um oh look i've got certain virtues or i've done certain good things or whatever or i did my prayers or i did the fast but whatever we do if we did it with sincerity comes from god we can also do good deeds with the devil's help. He will help you to do it so that we can become proud. So how do we know? How do we know if it's from the devil? How do we know it's from God? That's the whole thing. That's the whole question, and that's why we stay close to a spiritual father, so that, that God seeing your humility by going to a spiritual father and being under his guidance, he will protect you, protect me, where all of us from these uh, deceptions. We cannot a lot of times see what's from God, what's from the devil, what's from human reasons or whatever. It's very difficult to know. That's, that's what's called discernment. Discernment is, what is the greatest virtue to know, to be able to know what's from what. And it comes from our spiritual life. The more we struggle, the more we purify ourselves, the more we humble ourselves, the more God gives us this gift of discernment so that we can know to some extent what's happening. Therefore, in spiritual matters, correctness can do us more harm than incorrectness with the feeling of repentance. Now, this is, uh, I think this is a fantastic section, if I may say, and I'll read it and see if you understand it and I'll try to explain it. Therefore, in spiritual matters, in spiritual life, Correctness can do us more harm than incorrectness. Now, doesn't that sound like your mind's going to explode? It's trying to say, he's trying to say that a person who tries to be correct for the sake of correctness, for the sake of pride, for the sake of whatever, can do harm, more harm, than if a person is not correct is not doing the right thing a lot of times because he failed or because he's weak or whatever, but that person has repentance. So I'll say it again. 
A person who falls into sin or a person who makes mistakes or a person who is being battled with passions, etc., that person, if he's got or she has repentance, that person can be saved. But a person who is correct, who's doing everything, like I said before, in a perfect way, but does not have repentance, is lost. And hence the parable in the gospel, where Christ said, two people came up to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a publican. The publicans were really people that were looked at as bad tax collectors. They were horrible people because they used to take more money than what they were supposed to for tax. And the Pharisee came in, who was the person who kept the spiritual law, did everything as God commanded, perfectly. That's what they were known for. They were known for keeping God's law correctly. But he came into the temple, he stood somewhere where everyone could see, and he was praying and saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. I fast, he said in his prayers. I fast, I pray, I give certain parts of my income, whatever, to the temple, to the poor. The other person who was bad, he had fallen to sins, but came to a realisation of that badness, went and he was hitting his breast and was saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ said he was justified. In other words, if both died at that moment, he would be saved, the other person wouldn't, even though the other person was doing everything perfect. So without repentance, if a person doesn't have a sense of repentance, which, which is what I said in talk 27, if a person does not have a sense of repentance, then something's not right. And a spirit of humility. That's the way that we know our spiritual life is going right, but better to let a spiritual father determine that because we can be tricked and think that we've got humility and repentance. And it says here, um, so therefore in spiritual matters, correctness can do us more harm than incorrectness with a feeling of repentance. Now, let's look at this uh, correctness. I don't want to go a lot into it, but we have what's called the orthodox zealots, some who follow the old calendar, who believe that all the other churches have gone astray, all the other churches have lost grace, and they believe that they follow orthodoxy perfectly. That's what they believe. But the problem with them is, as I mentioned a couple of talks ago when I mentioned other examples, is that these people did not have a spirit of humility. Just following the orthodox, following the correct calendar, following everything, but not having a spirit of humility, repentance and love, it doesn't, doesn't get you into heaven. That's what's called super orthodox, super correctness. Some people just want to be correct for the sake of being correct. Now, in the Serbian church, there's some issues I've heard. There's some liturgical changes and things like that. Some of them I don't really know about, and maybe some of them are not right, some of them are wrong. But the point is, if a person has not experienced spiritual life, then even if what they're standing up for is correct, those people can fall. Then people say, oh, but the saints, the saints used to confess the truth, but that's why they were saints, because they had discernment to know how to speak, when to speak, but we don't have a lot of that. 
some, for example, can come to the church, say, even ordinary people, like, and they see something wrong in the church, a certain practice which isn't correct, and it isn't correct. That's true, it's not correct. And they say, this is wrong, this is uncanonical, this shouldn't be like this. I usually advise those people to put a zipper on their mouths. Why? Because... Even though what you're saying is correct, the demons will use that thing to make you fall into pride and make you lose everything at the end. So sometimes it's better not to speak up because of the effect it's going to have on your spiritual life. Now people might think that that sounds strange, but you know how many people were lost? Actually, I had a list of things here. There was a woman... Her son used to come to me for um, confession years ago and she was a super orthodox person. She was with the old calendar and she believed that all that everyone else is wrong. Even if church, like even Russian churches with the old, but doesn't matter because they're in the world orthodoxy, they're bad as well. Everyone's bad but them. So this woman, she was sticking up for the old calendar and she was whatever she was doing. Anyway... Her son was in charge of some type of, uh, I don't know if it was like a 7-Eleven or some type of store like that. And you know, some of those stores have inappropriate magazines. And I said to him, you can't be an Orthodox Christian and sell these magazines, pornographic magazines. So obviously, you're not going to sell them. And he says, that's right. So he didn't sell them. Anyway, Superwoman or Super Orthodox, whatever she is, comes and says that that's bad and I said, so what are you saying? Are you saying that he should sell them? And in her head, she made up and she said, it's a rule of the government that you have to sell pornographic books in the shop. And I said to her, so much for the 13 days, so much for the orthodoxy, so much for this and so much for that. I go, you've gone astray. And what she did later on, of course, she didn't tell people, the truth, she would go around and say to people, oh, that priest is a really bad priest and this and that. And uh, she got to the stage, which was really, which was actually, um, it was actually for me, it was a, um, a compliment. I felt quite good about it. She actually was saying, when he talks, he closes his eyes. You know, sometimes I close my eyes. Sometimes it's from tiredness. Sometimes I'm thinking. Sometimes I don't even know I'm doing it. And she said, when he closes his eyes, at that time, the devil is speaking to him. <laughs> but she never told people it's because I told her that that is really, really bad for her thing of trying to force her son to do that. Now, there was another person. See, this is what I'm trying to say. We can have zeal. We can have zeal. But then the devil comes along and mixes it all up and makes a fool of people if they haven't got humility. They go, oh, St. Mark of Ephesus, he confessed the faith. And St. Athanasius, and St. Maximus the Confessor, and all these other great saints confessed the faith. Yes, but they had something else. It wasn't just orthodoxy. You see, we kind of think that it's either orthodoxy or orthodox life. Orthopraxy, as we say. Orthodox life is the, the prayer, the spiritual struggle, etc., Orthodoxy is both. Yes, Anathanasius confessed that faith, but he also had humility and he also had love. 
And dis- these people had discernment. Now, these, these people who believe that they're standing up for something which could even be correct, because they don't have humility, because they don't have love, the devil comes along and completely makes them into mashed potato, just completely makes them into a mess. Another person, another zealot, she was working and also was on the, um, the pension. So she had two names, I think. Said to her, no, you can't do that. You either work or you um, get the pension. Because, oh, but I've got children and now they're going to live. I said, you can't. I said, what do you want me to do? Give you permission to steal. You can't do that. You have to do one or the other. Now, she went around and she said things too. I don't know. I don't remember what she said. But if, if I knew, I would have been quite happy with that too. Another person thought that he was a great, uh, he was fighting bishops. doesn't mean this country, it could be any country. I know people from America, England, it could be Greece. Could be, they were fighting a certain bishop for heresy. Oh, he prays with heretics, he's bad bishop, he's this, he's that. And I said to him, look, um, and he used to give out leaflets and cassettes and things like that. And I said to him, I don't mean to be rude, but you send your children to um, Anglican school and Catholic school. They're praying with heretics. I don't understand how you're going against the bishop for that, but yet you're sending your kids... That's what's called spiritual schizophrenia. Another zealot came many years ago to the monastery, to our little humble abode there, to give something. And she wasn't wearing a scarf, because I always knew her at church with a scarf. And she had dyed hair, cut hair, low cut, about a 60-year-old woman. I said, excuse me, I don't mean again to be rude, but how are you walking around like that? And she said, I never knew I was going to come here. I just was in the area and I just dropped this off. I said, doesn't matter whether you're coming here or whether you're going anywhere. Women don't walk around with their breasts half exposed. And plus you dye on your hair. And the reason why I said I'm going really strict on you, which I don't usually do, is because you are supposedly a big orthodox person that confesses the truth. And because of that, I'm trying to show you what's the point in following 13 days or whatever you're doing or not, you're not into the ecumenism if you're doing all these things, you see? This is the whole thing. Just lose ourselves. One woman was at a church. Again, it could be any country, I'm not going to say. She was an, an old calendar person that believed in that ecumenism's bad and the new calendar's bad and all these type of things. And she was at a church... And there was a simple priest there who was reading the Sunday gospel for matins. And uh, he was reading the wrong one because he was simple. He was a simple priest, didn't know. So this holy orthodox woman, as she thinks, shouted out in front of everyone in Greek because he wasn't reading the, the resurrectional gospel. He was reading something else. In Greek, as you know, Christos Anesti, the Anastasimo Evangelium, which means the resurrectional gospel. And she, and she shouted out and she said, Anastasimo, Anastasimo, vre, right? Now, vre means um, mate, you know, resurrection, resurrectional mate in front of everyone. And she had no problems with that. They have no conscience. But yet she was standing for the truth, supposedly. Right? Another woman came up to me years ago when I was at a Greek church when I was a lay person, before I became a priest, I think I've said this, and she goes, did you hear it? Did you hear it? I go, what? 
the priest commemorated the Pope. And I said, I didn't, I didn't hear any commemoration of the Pope. I said, when was that? She goes, I heard it at the end. I go, what, in the abolices? What's abolices in English? Um, in the dismissal. And she goes, yes, in the, in the dismissal. I go, yeah, Papa Romis, that's the saint. We have many saints who were popes of the church. And she looked at me and she put her head down and walked off. That's a, that's a silly one. Then we have also, not only just those zealots, we also have the other ones on the other side who are into the ecumenism and who, who believe that they stand for the truth and things like that. Another nice example at Manafos where I met a Orthodox priest, but he was, I think he was from France, maybe. France, or one of those, one, one of those countries there. And we were there at Manafos and we were at a little coffee shop waiting for the boat. And he was... Uh, telling me about, I wasn't a priest then, and he was telling me about um, that France of Assisi is a saint. See, a lot of the ecumenists, they want to recognise the saints of the Western Church after the schism. We don't recognise them. Especially France of Assisi. We have a Russian saint, I forgot who it was, Theophan the Recluse, who actually said that the man was in full deception. I explained to him, I go, oh, but we have many saints. We have that saint that says that, and that saint that says that, and that saint that says that. And then he, you know how some priests have hard hats? So he had a hard hat and he began to tremble because the truth always makes a person quite uneasy. He began, and I wasn't rude to him, and he began to tremble and he stood up abruptly and he hit those little lanterns that they have over there, Manathos, the gas lanterns, which was off, and he smashed the glass. The glass fell all over his um, beard and he had to shake all the glass off. He cut his hands and things like that. And that's another example of we have super orthodox on one side and then we have the others on the other side who are the ecumenists who believe in all these heretical things. Both wrong. Zeal without humility... Without a true spiritual life, the demons jump in and cause confusions and make the person fall into deception. The next one might sound funny, but it's not meant to be funny. But this is what happened. Again, I was a lay person. I was at a certain house, which was a man who was having his name day, St. Basil. And he was, he was a Greek, Greek, so he was following the new calendar. And all of a sudden, some woman came up which I knew was, an, was with the old calendar church, and she actually um, came there. I don't know why. I mean, she doesn't recognise the new calendar. She doesn't believe that the new calendar has grace. She doesn't believe that the communion is communion, and all these things, which I knew that. So anyway, I was sitting there on my chair, and she came up to me, and she wanted to say to me, you know, um, happy feast day, because it was St Basil's. So I sat there with my hands like that on my chest there on my whatever you call, on my lap and she goes happy feast day so I ignored her and she goes happy feast day and then she, I ignored her again and then she says why aren't you um acknowledging me I said well you blaspheme the mysteries that I partake of so why should I be a hypocrite and say hello to you when you're you don't even recognize the church that I belong to this is an orthodox zealot who believes that she's always correct ready and then suddenly, and this is, no, this is no exaggeration, 
she went, she let out a howl. She went like that. It was, it was like that exactly. And she goes, go and read the Holy Fathers. And she was screaming. And then she ran out of the, the house. She ran out of the house. Like screaming and shaking. Then her husband came up to me and said, very aggressively, what did you say to her? So I said, well, okay. I knew that my face was going to be rearranged, but I was ready to, I was ready to um, accept that. If I, thought. I just sat there, you know, God help, I think God was God's help. I sat there and I said, I told her that I'm not going to greet her at the time that she blasphemes the mysteries that I partake of. And then he said, you've got no love. I don't know what the love's got to do with it, but anyway, I've got no love. They've got love that say that every other orthodox person in the world is going to go to hell, except for them. Anyway, so he ran out too. Then the host of the house ran out into the street. This was dark. And I heard this commotion as if there was a massacre. And then she was shouting in the street and she was going... Uh, in Greek, like a holy fathers, holy fathers, the holy fathers, and screaming and screaming and screaming. And they were saying, come in, come in. And she was howling as well. I looked, uh, later on when I went out, I go, I must check if it was a full moon. But there wasn't a full moon, that was just her. So she was howling and howling, howling, howling. What? Was she, now back to the seriousness, did she become like that because I went against what she believes or something like that? What was it? Was her anger, was her howling, was her madness, whatever she had, her, what she thinks was zeal, zeal for the truth, did that come from that? No, I'll tell you what it was. It was simply one thing. She was offended that I didn't greet her. That's all it was. She was offended that I didn't greet her. That's the, see what I mean? But she believes that her action was that. Now, this is what I'm trying to say. Not to put this woman down, like that poor thing, let's just, we'll just leave her. We'll go back to ourselves. This is what we think. We're not sure when we feel things in ourselves, well, we shouldn't be sure, really is what we're saying or what we're doing or what we feel, is it from God? When we're angry at something, is it because it's really that we're angry against sin? or against something that's bad? Are we angry against the devil? Are we angry against ecumenism or whatever, or falsehood, or something wrong in the church? Or are we angry because of our ego? And this is what the spiritual life uh, helps us to understand, to understand ourselves. And that's why a lot of people say, oh, how come you don't ever speak about heresy? Why don't you do talks about ecumenism and things like that? I say to them, I tell you why I don't do it. Because... I believe that the people that I'm speaking to, and in general people, are not leading spiritual lives. If I do that, it's going to make them all go like uh, cuckoo, as we say, and they're going to start howling as well and things like that and think that they're, that they're having all this zeal and all things. It makes people go into what's called a false zeal. The demons come and ignite them and make them confused. And look at the woman. One was doing pension and... Uh, that other business, the other one wanted her son to sell pornos and this one here was howling in the street and the, the, the other one that I met in the train once, if you remember right when I, when again I was a lay person, I was in the train and this person was all the time trying to convert me to go to his old calendar church, whatever he was under and he gave me some periodicals 
And then later on, a few months later, he goes, oh, by the way, you know, where are the periodicals that I gave you? You know, you finished them. I said, no, I burnt them. And then he, um, he this wasn't nighttime, this was daytime. I was on my way to, to school. I used to teach at Liverpool. And I was on the train. And thanks God, there wasn't many people. There was about three people down there. I was in the bottom deck. And guess what he did? And um, this is not a joke. This is not meant to make laughter. He held as well. He went, woo, and he said to me, you, you heretic, you Latin dog. I love the Latin dog one. <laughs> you Latin dog. You, um, what else did he call me? He called me um, uh, frango, which means like Latin. Yeah, lang- uh, frangosculo. I love that one. That's like, a, that's, that's a Latin dog. And, um, he's, and he started studying blasphemies and he was calling out. And I said to him, look, I've told you before, I said, you're like, you're like a Jehovah Witness, you don't stop. I told you, even if your church was the last church on this earth, I wouldn't join it. I would never go to your church. Because that particular church he belongs to, they believe that they are the only ones that have kept the Orthodox Church and every Orthodox Church, Serbian, Russian, and other old calendar churches too, by the way, every single person is lost except for them people who do not understand spiritual life so these are the zealots and the ecumenists are the same thing there was one bishop he started to delve into orthodox dogmas orthodox dogmas and i'm going to read later on what elder joseph said about that how can you delve into orthodox dogmas when you don't have the purity you don't have the holiness basically somehow in his head he came to the conclusion that Christ was born with sins. That's the level he got to. Orthodox bishop, that's the blasphemy that he got to. Why? Because dirty people, people with defiled souls, and what I mean by that is not only him, all of us should not delve, should not try to get into the holy dogmas of the church, which needs purity of mind, purity for your heart. It needs holiness. And actually, while I'm on it, I should actually read um, what um, Elder Joseph the Hesychus says. And he said, read the, read the ecclesiastical history and see how many teachers of the church, Origen and thousands of others, even those who were at first great luminaries of the church, great fathers of the church. Some were even present at ecumenical councils. And they possessed ex- extensive learning. But since they gave themselves over to the sea of knowledge, meaning the sea of knowledge is to go into the depths of God's mysteries, especially dogma, they gave themselves, they tried to penetrate into that. Before receiving in Isichia, which means the, the Isichia, the Hesychism, which is that, that deep spiritual life which the Holy Fathers involve themselves in, which is the Jesus prayer, obedience, and they enter into so deep that they begin, that they actually see God, see God's divine light. The purification of their senses, they didn't receive peace, they never received the Holy Spirit. They sank by trying to swim in the dogmas, by trying to get involved in all these things. They actually sank in the ocean of the Holy Scriptures, like the Protestants who go in and start explaining things on their own, they sank as well. Impure people, like all of us, don't go into that level. When I speak here, 
I speak about mud. What's mud mean? Mud, mud means I'll speak about the passions. I'll speak about the level that I'm in. That, that's my level. I'm not going to go up high and speak to you about the uncreated light. Some people do talks on that and teach you really deeply. I won't do that because I am not there. To me, I speak about mud, which means passions, spiritual struggle, vainglory, pride, things like that, which is what we're in. But you won't catch me speaking deeper, going into deep about orthodox dogmas. How can I do that? And I'll actually confess something to you. Even when I try even to read from basic books on the Holy Trinity and just the dogmas of the church, I become confused. I, I just put it down. I can't do it. Because it's too deep and my confusion is showing me that I can't do that. You just back off. You need purity. You need holiness for that. And that's what Elder Joseph's saying. These people tried to get into the dogmas like that silly bishop did who fell to the level to say that Christ was born with sin. And others who say that the Roman Catholics as a church assist the church just like us. It's not to assist the church. Sister church is Russian church with the Greek church. They're sister churches. Serbian church with the Greek. They're all sister churches. Because they're all in the church. The Roman Catholic Church is not in the Orthodox Church. It's not in the church. They're their own thing. We're not sister churches. But that's the level that we get when people try to involve themselves in ecclesiastical things, dogmas, canons, etc., without having humility. Unfortunately, today, the majority of bishops don't have, as we say in Greek, ichnos, which means a trace of humility. And yet, it's because of that that they're falling into these big things. So it doesn't mean we're going to run away from the church. We've had this happen to the church for centuries. We've always had people that have gone off and things like that. And he said here, they thought, these people who got lost, they thought that their learning, using just their minds, was sufficient. The fact that they were educated. He goes, thousands were lost and anathematized by the councils of which they had previously been champions. They would anathematize him, cut him off from the church because he fell into heresy. Because of the lack of humility. So that's why I gave all those examples of the howling and the porno books and these people on purpose to show that we've got to be very careful even if something's right when people say um, oh yes but look that bishop prayed with the heretics yes he did and they go oh what's going to happen what's going to happen firstly calm down if you need go to a doctor and get something calm down firstly because by doing that by going, ooh, 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 and just going like that and reading books and then trying to write letters or, or confessing, people go and do that. It doesn't work. And the devil will use your zeal, as St. Paul says, zeal without knowledge, to make you fall in anything. So even if you've got something that you're in the right, you know what some Holy Father say? Better to be in the wrong. You're better to stand back and say, hey, that something's not right there, be careful, whatever, you've got to be very careful. But when you go into to fight something, stand up for something with your impure and madness and your pride and things like that, you have more chance of falling away. 
from the church completely. And even if some bishops are in the church, they're still canonical bishops, but they believe in ecumenism and they, and they pre preach it, and or because they're still canonical orthodox bishops, and even though their mysteries are still valid, it, it doesn't mean that in the next life they won't be lost if they don't repent for their heresy. And that's what's always happened in the church. That's why I do not like, even when I got into now, I didn't tell people, let's stand up for orthodoxy, let's go and confess the truth. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we have to be careful that the demons do not use our zeal and do not even use issues that might be correct to make us fall and lose ourselves like those people. St. John of the Ladder says something which, when I read it, I go, oh, this, is, this is actually wonderful, and I would like to read it to you so that you can actually see what I'm speaking about. He says here, St. John of the Ladder, famous saint, he says, at the beginning, meaning the beginning of spiritual life, some of the unclean demons instruct us in the interpretation of the divine scriptures. That is, to me... I don't know, it's just like I find that overwhelming. It's just, and yet not many people know. What is it? What, what's he saying? He's actually saying that the demons teach people about the Bible, teach them, and I'm assuming that he means teach them correctly, even correctly, to interpret the Bible in certain parts. Oh, this means this and this means that, right? And listen to this. Correct. Well, he doesn't say correctly. I'm, I'm assuming that he means correctly. He says, instruct us in the interpretation of the divine scriptures. A lot of people don't know that. People don't know. They think that, oh, how can the demons explain us something which is correct? Yes. That's no problem for him. And they are particularly fond of behaving in this way, ready, with a certain type of person. vainglorious people and of those who have been educated in secular studies those who are intellectual perhaps they they are edu like educated intellectually those people usually have a really severe pride of the mind now some people will say oh does that mean we don't go and study well if it's going to kill you maybe not if it's going to kill you spiritually maybe not or Make sure you, you know, you're careful as you're studying. So the demons use vainglorious people to do this trick. A lot of these people that I'm talking to you about, whether the ecumenists or whether the zealots, etc., they're very good. And Elder Paisios, I think, um, I think it's in that section that I gave you here, Elder Paisios actually says that people, especially if they're educated, can yap, 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 and say things, uh, what they've read. Can actually say what they've read. So they, they read a book and they go, they can actually repeat, repeat, and say things of what, they, of what they read. They themselves become proud of it, and those who listen to it go, oh, wow. But they don't know if they're not under guidance, if they're not leading a spiritual life of repentance, 
humility, etc. They don't know that it's the demons who are actually helping them. And so, by gradually deceiving them, first get their trust. So a person reads the Bible and he goes, oh, I think that means this, this and this. And someone else goes, that's what it is. I read that. Yes, a Holy Father said that's it. And the person goes, oh, I got it right. So it boosts up the pride, which they already exist, but boosts up more and more. Once the demons get the person into that trust in his own abilities, then comes the big things. The big guns come out. And this is what St. John Climacus says. He says that he may lead him into heresy and blasphemy. Heresy, Christ was born with sin. Blasphemy, oh, you don't have Holy Communion. See? Blasphemy one side, heresy the other side. Oh, blasphemy, no other church is orthodox but us, only we will be saved. That's blasphemy. Heresy. The, the Roman Catholic Church is a sister church. The monophysites are, it was a mistake. It was because the, the monophysites spoke a different language to the Greeks, they couldn't communicate, and it was a mistake. In other words, the Fourth Ecumenical Council was a mistake, and the, uh, the miracle of St. Infamia was a mistake. See? Heresy. Why? Because of the vainglory. Why do you think I spent so much time in part one of the talk today talking about this vainglory and pride and pride and pride and pride? So that's the purpose. We can recognise this diabolical theology, says St John of the Latter, or rather theomachi, which is a Greek word, but that's what, how they put it in English, but that means God-fighting, theomachi, God-fighting, because people who are in this at the end become fighters against God even though they think they are for God. We know that this is wrong because, he says, by the disturbances and the confusion and unholy joy which are felt in the soul during the instruction. I wasn't sure what St John meant. Did he mean in the person themselves who's speaking or did he mean in the person who's listening? I'm going to say my opinion because I don't know. I've got a feeling that he means the person who's doing the speaking. The person, if he has a sensitive spiritual life, will begin to start to see that while they're doing this interpretation, which, you know, it might not be bad in a sense, but that he be, if he's sensitive to his spiritual life, he's under a spiritual father, he's struggling, etc., he repents of his sins, struggles with his passions has humility, he will begin to feel the Spirit's presence in him and he feels it because he becomes disturbed, becomes somewhat disturbed, that he becomes confused and has unholy joy, like even though he thinks he's got joy that he's interpreting, but the joy is not from God, it's unholy, it's uh, mixed with horribleness. And, he's, and now I, I want to add to that, the person who also listens to that will feel the same. If that person's leading a spiritual life, he will feel, mm, something's not right, I don't feel good here. But if they're not leading a spiritual life, both the person who's doing the interpretation or the person who's listening, then they're going to believe this is all from God. 
That's the problem. See what I said to you before? I said that I wanted to read a little bit about something. I read a bit about the Holy Trinity. I became confused. I, I, didn't, I became agitated. I left it. Even though it was in a basic book, it wasn't anything really deep, but I just, it was, it's just difficult. And I thought to myself, no, that's right. Who am I? How can I grasp the dogma of the Holy Trinity? Remember, St. Augustine, the Western saint, he, St. Augustine was walking along the water, the beach or along the water, seashore, and he was thinking about the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He was trying, he was a theologian. He made mistakes, but anyway, but the point is, he's still a father of the church. And he was going along and he was thinking, the Holy Trinity, how is that? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how is it all? And then he saw a child, and the child had a bucket and was taking water from the ocean and putting it on the beach. And the saint said to the boy, what are you doing to the child? He goes, I'm going to empty all the water from the ocean onto the beach. He says, you can't do that, says the saint. And he says, either can you understand the Holy Trinity, which was obviously a angel or something that God allowed to happen to um, uh, humble him to understand that how can you delve into it, and especially if your spiritual level is not able to reach that. So, I mean, saints can be saints, but it doesn't mean they can reach all levels. That's why we have different levels of saintliness. I often think about the Holy Trinity and say, I've, I've said this before, why did God establish that dogma, which is a very big stumbling block for the Muslims, for example, because Muslims say that we believe in three gods, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they believe we, have, we believe in three gods. They believe in Allah, meaning one God, which is what Orthodox, what Christianity believes. But they say, you know, you don't believe that because you believe in Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which means you believe in three gods. So you are polytheistic, you are pagans, you are this, you are that. And this is a great obstruction in the Orthodox, sorry, for them and for probably for many people. And I often think to myself and go, well, why did God do that? Why did he give us this dogma of the Holy Trinity which has become a stumbling block for millions and millions of Muslims to convert because they pride themselves that they are the believers of Allah, one God. And the answer is as follows. Because that's how God did it. And because the Muslim religion and other religions is grasped with your head. But in the church, it's grasped with faith. It's a spiritual uh, thing. And that's why God did not give us a faith which is intellectual, which is philosophical, like the Greek religion of the pagans, where people could read it. You read it, understand. And other, and other faiths. What did the Protestants do? Anything that was too much for them, anything that was too deep or they couldn't understand with their, with their intellect, they just got rid of it. But in the Orthodox Church, we don't get rid of anything. If God has the dogma of the Holy Trinity there, he has it because that's for our salvation. If that's an obstruction for many people, he knows best. That's not for us to know. 
because one can say logically, humanly, can say, oh, what a shame. If it wasn't for the dogma of the Holy Trinity, perhaps millions of Muslims would change. But that's not for us to understand. God, that the church has got dogmas and they cannot be grasped with the mind. They can only be accepted with faith and the, the more one is purified through spiritual life, the more they enter into this dogma spiritually. The incarnation of Christ is, a, is again spiritual. We can intellectually say God became a man. And during the service, ah, that's what I was thinking. As I was sensing in the service, I looked at the icon and it came to my mind. I said, Christ is risen, truly is risen. People say Christ is risen, truly is risen. That's a dogma of the church, that Christ rose from the dead and that we will rise from the dead. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come, the last two parts of the creed. And people say, I believe in this dogma of the resurrection of Christ. And you know what I say? Do we? Do we actually believe? Our actions will show whether we believe or not. And I say we don't believe a lot of times. Why? Because if we believed in Christ's resurrection and because of that our own resurrection, we would be leading a life to attain that resurrection onto life eternal and not onto a life eternal in hell. But the fact that we're not really struggling to be saved means that we are rejecting Christ's incarnation, we're rejecting the Holy Trinity, we're rejecting the Theotokos, we're rejecting everything to do with salvation. We show that we are confessors of the Orthodox faith when we are also uh, struggling to attain salvation through the church. If we're doing that, then all these dogmas begin to make sense. That God became man, so man can become God. God became man, so man can become God with a small g. We are called to become like God with a small g, by grace. This only makes sense if we're leading a spiritual life and we're proving, yes, I do believe that God became man, so man become God, because I, I'm proving it with my life because I'm struggling to be saved. Any questions on just that section on that? Yes. The church always believed in the incarnation of Christ or the Holy Trinity, etc. However, a lot of times because of slackness, it was not um, kept. So when these councils occurred, they weren't really producing anything new. They were only given to the church in clear language what the church has always believed. So when Arius started to fight with his, um, he was a blasphemous. By the way, Arius was a faster, he was an ascetical person, he was, uh, was quite a spiritual 
person one can say. But he fell into the biggest blasphemy to say that Christ was a created being. Why? Because of his vainglory. Because of his vainglory. Anyway, and he said that Christ was not God. And a lot of the people in the church fell into that heresy. Why? Because their spiritual life was not proper and they lost themselves. And all the ecumenical councils did, the first ecumenical council and the second one, is that they gave to the church what the church has always believed in clear language. So the Holy Trinity, uh, we see it in the first and completed in the second day, and in, where it starts, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. So they're only saying the same thing, but more putting it in a language for people to understand a lot of times and things like that. Is that the question you're asking? That, that's what I mean, the creed, yeah. The, the, the first ecumenical council established the first part of the creed, and the second ecumenical council established the remaining part of the creed. So by us reciting the creed, we are confessing the Holy Trinity. Which is the Orthodox one, one creed. But they changed it. They changed it because they said that we're retarded. They actually, I read it the other day, they actually believed that Orthodox theologies not as advanced as theirs, that their theology developed and that they were more progressed than us to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, while the Orthodox, by saying that, they said it's not developed, it's not advanced like them. But this is just deceptions and I don't want to really waste my time on them uh, at this time because uh, they have changed so much Christ said himself, you know, his own words, the Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father. How dare they come along and change it and say, proceeds from the Father and the Son? And how dare they change the creed when it was said anathema to anyone who changes the creed and they just come along in the whatever, whatever later on in the 10th century or whatever, they started changing, even before I think, and they changed it, the creed. And the audacity to say that we are retarded in theology because we don't know. So, um, so back to this thing. It's better to be incorrect at times, but with repentance, with humility, rather than to be correct, as we noticed all these examples before. I don't think we need to go any more about that. Um, then the saint says, Therefore, in spiritual matters, correctness can do us more harm than incorrectness with a feeling of repentance. You will say, with correctness, one can also repent. And the saint says, repent of what? If we see ourselves as correct, if we see ourselves as good, if we see ourselves as correct, there's nothing to repent of. That's why they, the saint said that's the worst passion, pride. It's just a step away from deception. True correctness cannot exist because no one is sinless but God. Therefore, the Holy Fathers teach that deeds do not justify us even if we are meant to do them by the power of God. Like a bird is meant to sing, because that's its nature, that's why it was created. We are created to do good deeds. It's just part of our nature. 
Such is our nature. It will be silly to become proud that we have two arms or two legs, the same saying, for such is our nature. And if we do not do good deeds, then we sin severely against our nature and God's will. Therefore, it is good to do the deeds, to do good deeds and do whatever, but not in order to boast in our struggles and achievements. That's what I was saying before. We don't do the commandments. We don't do good deeds. We don't do prayers, etc., so that we can boast, so we can be proud of them. He says we do them so that we can acquire a greater degree of humility and repentance because it's humility and repentance which makes us go to heaven, which is the key, the ticket, one can say, to go to heaven. Without humility and repentance, there's no heaven. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do. If we do them, we do them to help us get repentance and humility. A person who fasts, a person who prays, but not for the purpose of acquiring humility and repentance, but instead fasts and prays supposedly to please God, or to justify himself, or to show off, whatever, this person is quite mistaken. That's what I was saying before. We continue on with Elder Anthemos. He says, no matter how much we have sinned, we must not despair. Simple, beautiful, doesn't matter what sin we've done. And you know what? We read all this. I've been reading these things for years as well, but do we penetrate? A lot of you people have read things like that. But do we realise, oh, no matter how much we have sinned, we must not despair. Okay, let's go to the next section. Skip it. We, just, we read books and we skip. We just go through them. We don't really... Someone said to me the other day, I heard a part in your talk which said that... I forgot which, what, what it was that, he, that she told me. And she says that I've read it and read this a million times, but I don't know why it just hit me now. I'm not saying because I said it. It can happen when you're reading a book. You can read a book. All of a sudden, you read one section, and even though you've read similar things, then all of a sudden it hits. Depending on your spiritual life, depending on your struggle, God then gives the enlightenment. So these things we read all the time. How many people have read, no matter how much we've sinned, we must not despair. But yet, what does life show us? That when we sin, we do fall into despair a lot of times. Because of our pride, we can't actually ask God to forgive us or we actually say God can't forgive us when we read in the books God's love is like the ocean it's as vast as the ocean or vast it's as vast as the ocean. just like a drop our sin is like you get a drop get an eyedropper and drop a little drop into the ocean does that make any, any significance to the ocean no that's how God's love is God's love and forgiveness is so great and our sin is just like a a little drop there. It's nothing. As long as we repent and confess. It's nothing. But yet we know that. We read it, but it doesn't really... We don't really experience God's forgiveness because our spiritual life is somehow gone off track. Elder Anatoly of Optina, another Optina elder. Did I read him? Yep. Elder Makaris was one we said before. Elder Anatoly, which is in front. He said here, I've received your many letters. He's talking to someone there writing. Why have you been attacked by depression? I cannot even guess. But some point long ago I wrote to you that a monastic can never go through life without ever being attacked by depression, despondency, and occasionally even a bit of despair. So the elder here is actually saying that we often fall into that because God allows us to fall into that to see ourselves, to see 
that we lack trust in him. We lack trust in his mercy. We lack trust in his forgiveness. So we fall into this despondency. And what is he waiting for, for, for him to take it away? All God's waiting for us is to, to repent truly. And then it all goes away. So I know that Eldon, I thought he was writing to a monastic. It doesn't matter. It's, it's for all Christians. So he goes, at times we get attacked, yes, with depression, with despondency. That's for us to say, oh, look, look how, look how I am. I can't even go to God. Repent and it's all over. So St. John of the Ladder says, oh, this is a nice example, he says, just as a marriage and a funeral are the very opposite of each other, a marriage is joy, a funeral sadness. He says they're the opposite. They're completely opposite. And he goes, so is pride and despair. It's like it's, like it's opposite, even though really it's the same thing. But he says he had pride and despair. Like how can a person feel so great about himself? And then he can't have despair, meaning that he can't be he can't feel down about himself. He's either down or up. But St. John of the Ladder says, no, actually, because of the demon's confusion that he brings on people, it can, it can happen that a person can be in despair and fluctuate with pride. That's why you see people that are depressed where you actually say they're depressed, they go, oh, I can't, I've got nothing, I don't feel like anything. And then at the same time, the same person starts to speak about themselves in a proud manner, both at the same time. Even at St. John Climacus, who was a master at examining the soul of a person, that's why we read, his, that's why we commemorate him on the fourth Sunday, I think, of, um, of Lent. And we also, in monasteries, they read his, his book. New Mata Archbishop Balaam again, do not become despondent, in other words, don't become hopeless and sad over your infirmities and do not consider them your enemies. This is a wonderful thing as well. Christians look at passions as being something that is horrible. And you might say, but isn't it horrible to have jealousy? Isn't it horrible to have hate? Isn't it horrible to have uh, anger? Isn't it horrible to have revengeful thoughts? Isn't it horrible to have disgusting thoughts or whatever? He goes, uh, he says, yes, they're ugly. They are ugly things. But, listen to this, he says, they are our spiritual friends. Now, is that enough to make some of you run out and say this is crazy? Right? He says, they are our spiritual friends. Either this saint is deceived, something's not right, Right? They are our spiritual friends. Can someone explain that now that you've um, heard a bit more tonight? How are our passions, our disgusting, horrible passions that I said before, it's like you're going through a boxing match that you're just completely knocked out a lot of times from all the passions overwhelming us if we're leading a spiritual life. Those who don't really lead spiritual lives, they don't really sense that. But those who lead spiritual life will sense that. How are they our spiritual friends? How, how do they help us in the spiritual life? Yes? They make us struggle and they bring us to humility. They bring us to repentance. That's correct. They bring us to humility. 
Because when we've seen all these passions on us and we can't fight them, we say, God, I can't do anything. I can't, I can't fight them. Help me. You know, you try, then you fall again, and you try, and you fall. And that action of falling, getting up, falling, asking God for help, that's humble. I remember once years ago, there was a person who was a gambler, and he was starting to come to the church. And he said to me, I'm going to stop gambling. I said, okay. I said, but with God's help. He goes, yeah, I'm going to stop gambling. I go, yes, with God's help. He wouldn't say it. He wouldn't say with God's help. I said, so how are you going to do it? He goes, well, I've always got this thing that when I put my mind to it, I can do it. Right? I said, with God's help. And I said, I want you to say it. I want you to say that you will stop gambling with God's help. And he goes, I will stop. It was, it was like... It was like I asked him for his house or something. It was like it was, it was so difficult for him to say because to say with God's help means, and to believe it, it means we need humility. And a lot of people, we lack humility. To say to your spiritual father, I'm weak, I'm overcome again. And people say to me, oh, I feel embarrassed to go to my spiritual father because I'm going to tell him that I fell again. So what? That, that's the best. That's actually when it's good. Because when you fall again and again and again and again, as long as you're trying not to fall, when you fall again and again, this is where you receive humility. This is where you become a true spiritual person. It's strange, isn't it, today, the things we're hearing? We, we prefer that, you know, those halos, don't we? Go, and go at home and get our photos, put a nice halo in front of us, around us and things like that nice cloud under our feet like the Catholic icons and think and light radiating from us we think that that's what spiritual life is things that are nice calm beautiful great joyful that's what we think spiritual life is it's not spiritual life remember that example I've given you a number of times which I find a wonderful example was um a visitor to Mount Athos was going along and he heard some commotion going on and he went and he saw some monks that were, dr that were drunk and they'd fallen into like a, a ditch and they couldn't get out because they were drunk and they were, they were all over the place. And the visitor said, oh, what pigs, like what pigs they are. And he heard a woman's voice saying, yes, yes, they're pigs, but they're my pigs. And that was the mother of God. And the meaning of that is that Yes, they did fall. Sometimes God allows big sins to happen. But those people get up, repent, try again, making a decision, I'm not going to do it, forgive me. And for God and for his Holy Mother and for all the saints, this is what they want. They don't want a perfect life like we think. They want a person who feels like a pig because of all their sins, to feel yucky, to feel the disgust of having jealousies and pride, not, not to run away. People run away. I've seen people run away from their sins and say, I can't handle it, I can't see it. Why? Because oh, it's just too difficult for me to see. And so they either run away from the church or they create a Christianity of their own type, which is usually those halo things and all like their own type. And so when we go to the paraclysis of the Mother of God, you know, our, um, 
I remember a, a young person telling me that he used to go to the parakrisis of the Mother of God. And he was, oh, he was going through all these passions and horrible things. And he said, when I used to go to the Mother of God's paraclesis, often to the church, and I used to hear the, the, the singing which says, attacks of the passions disturb me. My, my soul to fullness has been filled with despondency. Bestill them, calm them, O maiden, with the calmness of thine own son and thy God, O blameless one. And another part where he says, when I would read, from the great abundance of all my sins, ill am I in body, alien am I also in soul. Therefore I, f I run to you for help. Right? Brought low am I, a virgin, in a place of sickness, spiritual sickness, not just physical, spiritual sickness, and in a dwelling of anguish where a person has pain from within themselves of, what, of the way they are. They also have pain from the suffering that they're going through because the passions bring suffering. All the assaultings of the temptations do you defeat or vanquish and the onslaughts of the passions. Onslaughts. What's onslaughts mean? Attack of the passions. Banish from me. Take them away from me. Wherefore do we him thee, o, o virgin? Because with most grievous diseases and with corrupt passions too, I am put to trial. From the passions, all these are God's trials. God allows this to happen for our good. And we run to the mother of God and we ask, please help me in these trials. And it's all the troparia, all the hymns of the church, they all point to these things. Like another one, it says, quickly heal the diseases that sorely um, disturb my flesh and all my passions of soul that bring many sorrows and pains. My passions bring all these sorrows. This is the mind of the church. Have mercy, I entreat of thee, O mother, for my sins are risen up past my head, and I tremble sore with fear, and I think on the torments that are to come if I don't improve myself. The torments mean in the, in the, in the future life. These are the things that and when you sing these things, because these things are sung in the Orthodox Church, I'm just reading them to you. The, the, the beauty of the church, you don't find these services in the other religions because they don't look at a person as being sick of soul and need of healing. They don't look at it like that. When I ponder the judgment, I am afraid. That's how we should be. We should be afraid when we think about God's judgment. And I quake, I tremble at the terrible inquiry when we're going to be pointed out, you did this, you did this. That sentence affrighteth me, and, and the torment I sorely fear. With the pain of that fire, and the darkness, and Tartarus, etc., and the gnashing of teeth, and the worm that does never sleep, when the thrones are set up, when the books shall be opened, alas, what then shall I do when all deeds shall be put to trial, and all the secrets shall be made known? O lady, be a help to me, a protectress and most zealous advocate for me, thine unfruitful servant, etc., etc., Oh, this one I like. This is one of my favourite things. It says, um, it says he, the, again, praying to the mother of God and say, and since I am a shameful abode of iniquity and a plaything of demons in working with the demons, swiftly come to save me from their wicked devices through virtue, converting me to a dwelling completely bright, a, de a clear vessel of purest light. So here we're saying that we've become 
a plaything of the demons, that the demons play with us, meaning they trick us, they point us towards sin, illumine my darkened soul, which is blinded with passions. So here the person who wrote this is saying that because of our passions, we're blinded, spiritually blind. So how can we talk about dogmas? Or how can we be zealots for the faith if we're full of passions and we're blind? See the spiritual life? You know, in the, I'm stuck in the mud of sins and you who gave birth to God, help me, deliver me. That's what we pray during services, paraclesis, etc. of the Orthodox Church in your prayer books, morning prayers and night prayers. It all has that spirit. That's how we should think. That's how we should feel. That's the, that's the mind of the church. That's how Orthodox Christians should be. That's how Orthodox Christian should be struggling so the, um, they are spiritual friends. Our passions are our spiritual friends. I'm sorry, I didn't finish that. That uh, a lot of Orthodox Christians, when they come to the church, everything's easy, everything's nice at the beginning. They begin to read, it's all beautiful, this and that. Once the passions come, as I said, either they run away or they make up some deceived spirituality. Not many people actually are able to fight the passions. They're scared. See, orthodoxy is a religion which demands courage, not weaklings. Some people say, oh, the church is for old women or the church is for nerds or the church is for people that are just worthless, etc. No. Remember Alexander the Great? The, he, he actually he was a pagan, Greek, and um, he conquered... I think the known world at that time. And he said, he said, I've conquered the world, but I haven't conquered my passions. And that's what these saints did. They conquered their passions. They fought with their passions. Spirituality, orthodox life, is not for little old women like people believe or for kids like people believe and for weaklings like people say or whatever. No, no. Spirituality is, as I said, for the brave ones. Remember I said once to you that someone went to Mount Athos and he, he um, was starting to repent. He began to change his life and he went to Mount Athos. So he went into Mount Athos and uh, suddenly he was in, his, in a room and as I, I've told you the story before and the bed started shaking, the bed sheet started fluttering in the air and he closed his eyes, right, and then he stained himself and he was shut his eyes and he just all he could do was just say the prayer and then he waited for it to go over couldn't even open his eyes he was scared right so much for the christianities for you know but um it's for weaklings anyway and then after it went away he ran to the abbot who was elder haralambos which we've got his book at the back from the monastery of the the Nusil. so he went there and he said this happened to me and what's going on i'm i'm scared and this and he goes oh What's the problem? He says, because you used to belong to him, he's not letting you go. But to him it was like, ha, huh, what's the problem? Because you just got to struggle. Some people say, I'm not doing that. Goodbye, I'm going. Run away. So much for the church is for weaklings, not for weaklings. The church has weaklings, I have to say. The church is full of people who are weak in the sense of won't struggle with their passions. But they're not proper, they're not true Christians. True Christians are those 
who fight the passions as we read on. Got scared. Oh, I used to see others. Another person went to Manaphos and he was in the service. All of a sudden, he, and I actually read it the other day in St John Climacus, he got a stomach pain, full of gas, really to the point that the stomach was ready to burst. So we go, oh, that's a coincidence. He must have eaten something. Anyway, so it's funny that 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 can happen to someone even though he hasn't eaten for uh, 15 hours. So anyway, another person was there and he became to become fully itchy, really violently itchy, and he runs out of the church. As soon as he runs out of the church, the itchiness goes away, comes back in, it starts. So a psychiatrist would say, that's psychosomatic, he's making himself itchy. But if that same psychiatrist came to the church and started to pray and says to, to Christ, I want to repent, right? I wonder whether when he gets itchy and he starts running for the hills, whether he'll actually say, oh, it's psychosomatic. You see, that's what people don't know. These people who talk about it, they've never struggled in spiritual life. They don't know. When they start to struggle, then they'll know. Every time a person says to me, oh, I was sleeping and something fell on me and, and I couldn't breathe and I was scared, and I go, have you recently um, increased your prayer or are you doing prayer? He goes, yeah, I've decided I wanna, I'm going to start praying. I want to be saved. That's why. Now it's up to you. What are you going to do? You're going to get scared and run off or you're going to struggle? And the more you struggle, as we're going to read on further on, which I don't think we're going to have time today, the more we struggle, ah, here we are, and it says here, St. John of Cronstein says, do not despond when fighting the invisible enemy. Don't despond. Don't become hopeless because obviously it's hard. He says, do not despond when fighting the invisible enemy. Not the visible, invisible, the spirits. But instead, glorify the Lord during your affliction and oppression because you have been found worthy to suffer for him. For you are resisting the deceitful and cunning serpent. The devil, in other words. And are being wounded for God at every hour. Because you're fighting him, he's fighting you. And he's inflicting pain, he's knocking you down, could even, he could even fall into sin or whatever. And that's very difficult. But he says that's because you are struggling. But those wounds are because you're struggling for God. He says here, if you were not living a pious life, if you were not struggling to unite yourself to God, in other words, if you weren't struggling to be saved, the enemy would not have attacked and tormented you. The fact that you're becoming attacked, the fact that all the passions are starting to, or to come on you, the fact that you're suffering so much, and even if you fall into sins or whatever, it's because you are struggling and you've opened up the doors to the devil to come with God's permission. I had something in my head then I just forgot. See what spiritual life is? That's what I'm trying to emphasise in this talk tonight. If you don't walk away with much, walk away with one thing. When the passion's attacking you, when you feel suffering, when you've got mental, even if you've got mental issues happening, etc., because the devil hits the mind, hits the body, hits everything, it doesn't mean that that means you're a bad person. It means that I mean, even though we, we, of course, we are sinful, but it doesn't mean that something's not right. It means something is right. 
And that's what St. John of Cronstein saying. He says, the fact that you're struggling is the reason why you're being attacked and tormented. But unfortunately, and I'm going to say this, so many people that I've come across in all my years of being a priest, and do you know how many have... Ah, oh, that's what I want to say. You know, Anzac Day, was that, is that next week, isn't it? The, sorry? Next week, yeah. We should have had the talk next week because it would have been um, a long weekend and you couldn't sleep in the next day. But anyway, when we see these people that come back from wars with an arm missing, with one leg, no legs, etc. We don't say, idiot, how'd you get your legs blown off? Or how'd you get your arm blown off? Stupid, idiot. We don't say those things. We look up to them and say, wow, look, you know, he fought for his country and he lost his legs or he lost his arms. And we look up to them. We're proud of them. But yet, in the spiritual life, it seems to be opposite. When a person is being knocked down, when a person is suffering, when a person exhibits his passions or mental issues or whatever because he's struggling, it's like, it's like to ourselves we say, to ourselves, about ourselves, we go, oh, yuck, what a, that's not a proper spiritual life. Or others might even say, and he calls himself a Christian and that's not Christian life. But that's wrong. God... Actually, as we, as we look at these old diggers, we say, and look at them, and even if they lost their minds, we say, poor things, they actually we, they lost their minds from all the, what, what they went through. And we still, we, we look up to them, we feel sorry for them, we say, you know, what great people they are, etc. That's how God, God even more, he looks at us. And even if we fall into sin during the struggle, not on purpose, but during the struggle, and we fall, etc., God is, is pleased and God rejoices in a person who's struggling in the mud with his passions. That is the essence of the spiritual life. Now, this talk did not finish. I did not even get through much. There was so many other things I wanted to read and an example of a monk that fell into... Anyway, there's so much stuff here. Look, look. Oh, all these pages we didn't do. So with God's help, I want to continue, if it's God's will, of course, if we're here, to continue this talk, very important talk. That's the old diggers I was trying to say. That, that's the part that I forgot. But I also forgot to say that there are people who I know are in the church and are spiritually paralysed. That's what despondency means. They will not struggle. They refuse to struggle. They go to confession. They'll go to communion. They'll even read a bit of books. They'll do a bit of prayer now and then. They might even keep fast. But they refuse to struggle against their passions. And because of that, they cannot, if whether I'm doing it or whether you do it or those who hear the talk, Whoever is doing that, whoever refuses to struggle against their passions is not an orthodox Christian. There can be no salvation unless we struggle against the passions. The door to heaven is open to those, not those who are perfect, not those who do everything beautifully and correct, for those who are struggling um, against their passions, 
who repent when they fall, who ask God's mercy and love, and they, as we, as we read further on, which I didn't read tonight, the, the church calls those people martyrs. Martyrs. Because they are suffering, not because they had their hands cut off like the ancient martyrs did. A martyr is one who suffers, and even if he's suffering from the passions, like that example of Manaphos, which was, as I said before, there were some monks living in a small cottage, a house, and they used to fight continually, bashing each other really bad. They used to have a lot of what we call grinya in Greek, but just all the time, friction, friction, friction. They used to fight, 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 tell each other off, hit each other. It was like the demons were there partying with them. And they even the other monks tried to tell them, and they just, they just um, it was like it was really strong in them. Some people are just, by nature, inclined to certain sins. It's very hard for them to stop. Anyway, the other monks tried to tell them to stop from the other houses around. They, wouldn't, they just kept on going on and on for years. And one day, as I said before, it was all quiet. And um, one of the Holy Fathers there in the skeet saw in a dream or heard, I can't remember exactly, saying, go and bury my martyrs. And... He didn't know what that meant. Martyrs, what martyrs? We're not under persecution. What, what, what does this voice mean by these martyrs? And so anyway, this monk, he came to their house and he saw that all those monks that were in there had died. God had taken them. But what he noticed was that they died, but they were all in a position of prostration. They were all kind of bowing down. You see, in the monasteries, which should be also in our houses for us who lead Christian lives, we always should ask forgiveness before we go to bed of our family, of those around us. That's where we do compline with our family together, but people don't even do that anymore. Anyway, married couples especially should always ask forgiveness for each other. Never go to bed without asking forgiveness. But asking forgiveness means humility, and humility is absent for a lot, for a lot of us. Anyway, so these people did the compline, and they were asking forgiveness. So this holy man found them prostrated down asking forgiveness. They, what they do is, if someone offended someone, they'd go up and they say, forgive me, and do a prostration at the person's feet and kiss his hand. So they found everyone prostrating at each other. And he tried to understand what's this martyrdom, 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 and then through God's enlightenment he understood that these people didn't want to be the way they were with this anger. It was a passion. It was a very, very strong passion that happened, and they would fight continually, but they didn't want to fight, and they would repent every day over their passion, asking God to forgive them, asking God to save them despite their passion and saying to God, please save me, don't let me go to hell because of my passion, help me to stop this passion, etc. Struggle, spiritual struggle, but still they were falling every day. Maybe a little bit better sometimes, but, but they were falling. And God called them martyrs. When we suffer from our passions, whether sexual or whether whatever passion it is, but we're really trying to stop it and we're suffering in the process, this is a form of martyrdom. In God's eyes, we will be given a crown of martyrdom. God willing, we will continue this next week. The angel. Dance now and be glad, O oh son.